BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Fill her up. You're listening to the Gas Digital Network. Welcome to another episode of Without a Country. I'm Corinne Fisher. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate you. Hello to Mike and Natalie's back in the booth, everybody. What's up? How are you? Hello. Welcome back. Um, all right. Uh, big day. Well, first of all, I want to give a shout out to my girl, my my uh, less lonely girl, Rosebud Baker, her for a uh, Netflix special comes out uh, today. So excited. She is part of uh, the verified stand up series that premieres uh, tonight or probably is already up because it's the 28th. I don't know how they work days on Netflix, but I'm so excited to watch that when I go home. Um, she is pregnant in it. So her little baby Minnow is also, I guess, does have a Netflix special as well. That's so exciting. We love to see our friends doing well and taking over the space check it out follow her if you're not already following her write something nice give it a thumbs up on the old netflix we are doing it uh, all right guys um a lot of a lot of cult documentaries coming out. I mean, I think cults are always a popular thing to make a documentary about, but I feel like specifically, maybe I'm just noticing it more because I like I was talking to my best friend about it, and I'm like, I I'm fascinated by all these cult documentaries. I'm fascinated by the concept of a cult. I think it speaks a lot to um, who we are as a people, what stage we are at in society, what is lacking, what people need. Uh, I finished last night, um, you know, well, the episode three came out yesterday, so no one, no one could have finished it before yesterday unless you have a have a special in. But I finished uh, Love Has Won the Cult of Mayor uh, of Mother God uh, documentary, which is from HBO yesterday. It was three part docu-series. And God, that one made me so sad, right? I felt like the Escaping Twin Flames um, uh, documentary 
was like very evil. Uh, but this one made me really sad because this was just an in-depth look at what happens when you let an addiction uh, to substances absolutely fucking rule your life. I mean, to me, this is it's barely a documentary about a cult and so much a documentary about feeling lost, turning to substances and then letting those substances rule your life. Like, I mean, by episode three, I was like absolutely bawling. And it just shows um, how like how something like that can happen if you get a group of people together who have un, you know not dealt with their childhood trauma and uh, are feeling extremely lost in the world um that to me is is what that documentary is about we're going to get into it a little bit more i did p- uh, pick a, an article about it from vanity fair and we'll read that together um but there will be spoilers if you haven't already watched it. I do recommend it, but it also like bothers me because there's so many concepts, again, the same as Escaping Twin Flames, that I do believe to be real and I think are very helpful and are meaningful in the spiritual universe. And I feel like there's so much content. And listen, the same can be said for, you know, Christianity, which I mean, I'm sure, you know, many people live their entire lives based on the tenements uh, of Christianity. And we've certainly seen our fair share of documentaries absolutely uh, destroying Christianity or uncovering all the problems that uh exist within Christianity. And I don't think after that anyone goes, well, this proves that, you know, God doesn't exist. So I guess I can look at it in the same way. Um, (laughs) I just found it, you know, find it personally uh, upsetting when they're, you know, taking tarot and things like astrology or, or, you know, numerology. Some of these I have mixed feelings about. And you see that all going on. And these people are also like ingesting liquid silver uh, because they read on some kind of a faux wellness blog that that will heal almost anything. And by the end of it, they are, you know, a barely walking corpse who has turned blue like a cartoon character. So, you know, they're just like we always discuss on this show. There's a middle ground um, everywhere. Also, shout out to everyone who watched uh, last week's episode. Like I said, I was so insanely proud of uh, that episode. I just loved a lot of things that we covered. I loved my hour-long interview with Craig Monger from 1819 News, and I'm really glad that we decided to read the full Osama bin Laden's Letter to America. A lot of you also uh, agreed that you were glad that I sat and you know spent 20 minutes reading that. But I just th- thought, hey, we're discussing it. It's time, you know, when you have your own podcast, you can really stop and do whatever you want at any fucking time. And that's great. Um, one of the uh, listeners, uh, the wackos on YouTube said the interview was top notch. I have two minds about them running the initial story. Every journalism course I took in college says that if it's a public figure, they're fair game for whatever. And later stories that came out showed that Copeland, Bubba Copeland, Mayor Bubba Copeland, was doing some damaging things like using people's real names and images that definitely made it the public in the public interest. But the initial outing of Copeland didn't seem that necessary, even given the target audience. I And I basically agree with this person's entire comment. That's not why I'm reading it. It was just like a really good comment. <laughs> but I don't just read. I, I read lots of comments that are uh, negative towards me. Don't worry. Um, I give Monger uh, props for standing by his position 
And I agree that neither he nor 1819 is responsible for Copeland's uh, death. And then the the writer does also correct uh, Mike on his pronunciation of Muhajadeen. Muhajadeen, yes. Muhajadeen. Well, I I know now we basically can ha- like have a drinking game on this show where if you tell me something is a hundred percent pronounced one way, I I can I can cross that way of pronouncing it off the list because it's definitely not that way. I think I might have said a thousand percent. You you have said <laughs> so many things in full confidence on this show, and you're my friend, and I trust you. And so when you say it, I go, "Well, Mike wouldn't say it to me in that." much confidence but i forget that like you're not saying it to me to fuck me over you're saying it because you really have lived your life with this much blind confidence about yourself but i think that's why your your life is doing so well right now because like everyone's look at you going this guy can't can succeed and you're fucking killing it more than anyone else and we all are in awe of it we're all in of in awe of your <laughs> success and your positivity looking at a pretty, you know, at times hopeless situation. <laughs> uh, you never hope. Never without hope. Never without hope. Yeah, dude, hope's free. Oh, my God. Uh, Michael uh, Obama over here. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, and some people were asking about. Sorry, just to correct myself. It was, it's Mujahideen. I had it wrong last week. Uh, just like Maharaja, uh-huh. that's what I got confused. Okay. So it is definitely Mujahideen. Okay, I asked, wait, wait, wait. I asked my mom the next day. Why would your mom know? Because my mom is smarter than I am. And she was like, oh, no, honey, you are an idiot who steered this woman wrong. Mujahideen. Mujahideen. It's almost like two, it's almost like when you speak it in English, it's almost like it's two words. Mujahideen. Yeah. Mujahideen. Because we, 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 we wouldn't put like those sounds together. Yeah. Mujahideen, because I think when we when an American see a word that is not in um, American English and there's a J in it, we we always assume that we have to pronounce it like a Spanish J, like a ha. But this uh, like a ha. Sorry, I just I just did like a, a Hebrew J. <laughs> um, uh, but this is not Spanish, so that just. Take that off the list, everyone. So, so what I think it is, I think I conflated it because uh, India has the Maharaja. Mm-hmm. So I, I just conflated the two. I was like, oh, yeah, the you know, they both have the ding-a-ding of music. So I figured it would be I like I just want to go of... on record and say I, have not, I am not associated <laughs> with anything that he says. We need you on the show, though, because you're like the likable but semi-problematic guy at the office who like, we'll talk to you at the water cooler and then we'll go back out to our desks and be like, well, I feel pleasant about that interaction, but then I'll digest the words that you actually <laughs> said. And I'll go, I don't know that that person should have the right to vote. Um, so good to, good to have you here. And that's like, you're just like, I feel like you are, you know, listen, tons of people say, get Mike off the show. Please fire him. Don't let him speak into the microphone. And I say, no, guys, th- what? this show is about is like getting a taste of like some real American people who have long political conversations and really have no right or level intelligence to do so myself included right so you know it's like I am taking I'm the role of like self-righteous used to be extreme liberal feminist uh you know artist bitch who has a microphone many times in the comment section on my reels people one comment I got this week is they need to stop giving white people podcasts. That was, 
Mike almost spit take on the keyboard. That was one of my favorite comments from this week, not from a listener, but just, you know, my uh, my reels from this, sh- uh, this show uh, since the Israel-Palestine conflict has uh, exploded once again, have really been uh, ending up in interesting places. So the comments section on these reels is, is hot, hot, hot. And the great part is no one... Everyone thinks that I'm against them, right? So Israeli people or, you know, Zionist folks or whatever, they they all think I'm like anti-Israel. The Palestinian people comment and they think I'm like anti-Palestine. And it's so funny because it's so hard to clip this show because we're having such in-depth conversations. But I've also noticed like multiple people um, who used to follow me who are uh, pro-free Palestine have unfollowed me. And I know it's because they saw a clip and didn't take the time to watch the show. Yeah, it turns out, guys, we fucked is haram. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and just, that's the clip we're talking about right um yeah and it and it's just like it's really disappointing because it's a lot of people that i respected and i thought were intelligent and i thought would take the time and not i'm not saying that everyone should t- has to, has to or could possibly take the time to take in everyone else's content um of course that's r- ridiculous um but to unfollow based on like me doing a clip about the rise in anti-Semitism and you then taking that and ingesting that as me being anti-free Palestine, which I am not. I am pro-free Palestine. Um, it, it is super disheartening, you know, and these are the same people who would say things I know, like I'm not here to educate you. Well, it's like you may not be here to educate me, but please take the time to educate yourself because now you're walking around with hate in your heart for me um, because you saw a little blip of something that I was talking about and you took that as me doing something like being targeted against you. Like you made it, you went and made this about you and you made yourself the victim in a situation where I'm a hundred percent, I am, I'm, I'm supporting you. We might not have the same exact thoughts on the conflict in totality, but yes, I also agree. Pal- like Palestinians should not be living under the rule of Israelis. I, uh, yes, I agree with that. Um, I don't agree with how either party is going about what they're, uh, what they're doing at this point, you know? Um, all right. So that was that, that was a very interesting, um, thing to observe happening this week. Also, Mike, can you get me water at one point? Sorry, I forgot. I was so busy working on the show, I forgot to get water. Um, first thing I want to go over, um, well, oh, the enemy of the state this week. God, who is the enemy of the state this week? The enemy of the state this week, I am going to make it uh, ex-Obama White House advisor, uh, Stuart Seldowitz. Enemy of the state. This was going viral. <laughs> Sorry, Mike is cleaning off my liquid death with his shirt, which somehow I know made it dirtier. (laughs) And you also did it with the part that was touching your belly or possibly the top of your dick. Okay. Um, Anyway, thank you, Michael. Um, Yeah, so my enemy of the state this week is Stuart Saldowitz. You probably have already seen this uh, video or this series of videos going viral. I had been aware of it last week, but we had so much stuff to cover last week between, you know, Osama bin Laden's letter that was radicalizing TikTokers and Craig Monger, Craig the hottie monger. I got to say it. Um, And but I'm so proud of myself. I didn't let it affect my interview. 
Um, and I almost put that in quotes in the episode description. What? Featuring Craig the hottie monk. Well, that, because that's because Mike was attracted to him, too. Be- before, Instantly. Yeah, <laughs> before, Are you kidding me? That man was striking. Right. <laughs> And, we, and, and, and according to the to what he said in the interview, he had kind of just gotten hot, um, and so he had no he had no he didn't have the attitude of a hot guy, which was why he was so pleasant to speak to. That's the kind of guy you can get to, to leave his wife. I don't want to get. I don't I'm want. I'm just Cra- saying. I want Craig's you, wife to enjoy <laughs> her hot man, and I and I hope they have a hot biblical sex together. I'm I'm just now seeing this guy. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, I'm actually surprised. I was like waiting for everyone to be commenting on it. Like, uh uh-oh, Corinne found her twin flame and like no one said anything, guys. And it's like, how did you not catch that vibe? It was like a little bit insulted that you guys didn't catch that, but okay. (laughs) Anyway. Um, it's like that scene in, uh, you've got mail right at the beginning when Meg Ryan's boyfriend, who she starts the movie with is, does the TV show interview and he's, and they're like flirting on air. And then, and then he's like, yeah, I don't love you anymore. We're just friends. And then she's like, is there another person? And she ends up, he ends up dating the, the woman from the talk show. But I don't want Craig to leave his wife, nor has he said this is literally all made up in our heads here in the studio. He didn't do he said nothing of the sort unprofessional. We didn't talk at all beyond what you guys saw. I don't know. Recovering alcoholic. Well, re- I know. Recently hot. Well, then that's the thing, your wheelhouse, Corinne. I know. When like in the middle of the interview, when he dropped that he used to be a bad boy, I was like, fuck, we're in, I was like, keep it under control, Corinne. <laughs> But like for real, I wouldn't have let it. Um, I, I didn't. I, I was. It, it's there's very few times in my life when I'm actually distracted by someone's looks. But I didn't let it distract me. The, I just I just took it in when he came on the camera. I took it in. I said, Corinne, you can handle this. And I asked him all the same questions that I was going to ask him. Um, and sometimes, you know, if there's a, there's a vibe, it actually makes you more prone to fighting. And we didn't fight at all. We we had a whole hour where we didn't fight or raise our voices at each other. And I thought that was really lovely. Anyway, back to the enemy of the state. This guy is not hot at all. Fuck this guy. Um, like I said, we just had so much content last week that I wasn't able to share this, but I think it's worth sharing. This is from the New York Post. Ex-Obama White House advisor harasses halal cart vendor, says killing of 4,000 Palestinian kids, quote, wasn't enough. And these videos are hard to digest. Like, it's sometimes when you're reading an article about something someone said, it makes it seem more uh, vicious than it actually uh, was when it came out of their mouths. In this in this instance, I saw the videos where he says this directly to the guy and he, it is so vicious and he has so much hate in his heart and it is, it almost made me want to sit down with him and go like, how did you get this way? Like you weren't born this way. How did you get to a place where you are walking around carrying this much hate in your heart? And even more interestingly, how, how were you able to succeed and go so far in your career you know, being a a White House advisor for Barack Obama, how did you get that far holding that much hate in your heart? Because holding that much hate in your heart is is heavy, right? It takes up a lot of real estate. And so I was almost impressed um, that he was able to get that far in his career. A former White House security advisor who served under President Barack Obama spewed Islamophobic remarks at a halal cart vendor in New York City on several occasions, according to shocking videos. Stuart Seldowitz was caught on camera calling the Upper East Side vendor 
a terrorist and berating the man for not speaking English. It's also interesting because we don't really see a ton of stuff like this in Manhattan. But up, if you're going to see it, Upper East Side, where the old crusty white folks live, is where you're going to see it. I like never go to the Upper East Side. and uh, But the vibe like above 14th Street and below 14th Street, as you've probably heard me talk about here before, and certainly when I do stand up, uh, is much different. And I you know, pretty much exclusively dwell and hang um, below 14th Street. The former White House official also suggested the Muslim prophet Muhammad was a rapist and claimed that more Palestinian children should be killed among amid the Israel-Hamas conflict. If we killed 4,000 Palestinian kids, it wasn't enough. The bigot identified by Internet sleuths as Seldowitz said in one of the viral clips posted to X, a.k.a. Twitter, Tuesday, it wasn't enough. Um <clears throat> Excuse me, Israel, Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 5,000 Palestinian children in Gaza since the current Hamas-Israel war began on October 7th, according to UNICEF Executive Director Catherine Russell. The former diplomat has been harassing the street vendor on the corner of East 83rd Street and 2nd Avenue for approximately two weeks, according to the Columbia grad student who posted the videos filmed from the perspective of the vendor 2X. Seldowitz is wearing different clothing in the clips, which appear to be filmed at different times of day. Seldowitz, who worked as a deputy director, senior political officer in the U.S. State Department Office of Israel and Palestinian Affairs in the early 2000s, threatens to send a photo of the vendor to his, quote, friends in immigration and Egypt's security services who said uh, who he said would torture him when they deport you back to Egypt in the first video posted to X, which was filmed after sundown. Did you rape your daughter like Muhammad did? He asked the vendor after snapping a photo of him and laughing. The footage shows the street vendor tells Seldowitz that he doesn't speak English, seemingly to get him to leave. But instead, the ex-political aide berates the man, telling him he's ignorant and that's why he works in a food cart. Um, in another clip, also like working in a food cart is fucking awesome. Sometimes like on Food Network when they win, when they win Chopped or whatever, it's literally to fund their dream, which is to open a food cart. So that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't even check out. That's like a fucking awesome small business to run. And it can turn into such a larger business. That just irked me. Um, in another clip, Seldowitz holds an Israel pin up to the window of the halal cart and asks the vendor if he has a permit and visa as the vendor repeatedly asks him to leave. You support killing young children, Seldowitz tells him, claiming that the vendor supports Hamas. You kill children, not me. Go, the vendor says as he waves him off, according to the video. I didn't kill children, Seldowitz replies. If we killed 4,000 Palestinian kids, it wasn't enough. I mean, I don't think either of them killed children directly. A third clip shows the former acting director for the National Security Council South Asia Directorate under the Obama administration asking the vendor if he is in the country legally before a construction worker steps in to stop the ongoing harassment. The Post could not immediately reach Seldowitz for comment, but he confirmed to the Daily Beast that he was the person in the viral videos. The bottom line is, yes, it's me, Seldowitz told the outlet. I mean, it's a pretty clear video, um, unless you have a twin brother. He said the videos only show the vendor's side of the story and that his alleged harassment began after the vendor, he claims, expressed support for Hamas. And that's all well and good. And in the age of Internet, things are certainly butchered um, to look a certain way. But like there is no edit uh, that with the pieces of continuous 
recently shot footage that we have of Seldowitz that would ever excuse anything he said. It's like also like, dude, just fucking walk away. Like, just walk away. Uh, the NYP, and it's like, why would you keep going back also, you know? Okay. The NYPD said the commanding officer of the local precinct is aware of the videos and cops from the precinct are monitoring the situation. Meanwhile, lobbying firm Gotham Government Relations, where Seldowitz was a consultant, announced that it ended all affiliation with him after the videos of his shocking behavior went viral. And also, like, this is so extreme to me, his behavior, that, like, I don't see how there's any way that he could not have previously exhibited some behavior like this at his place of work, right? Like, the only way I could see this being, like, incidents that only happen at the halal cart is if he has some sort of a drinking or drug problem and he's only using when he's not at work and then gets the munchies and shows up to the halal cart. And that's like a very in-depth story I just crafted. And he also doesn't really seem um, under the influence in any of these videos. And that certainly wouldn't be an excuse. It would just be like the, to me, it's like, Okay, well, Gotham government relations, there's to me, there's no way that he hasn't exhibited something that was questionable. And the only reason you're now letting him go is because you have pressure on you because these videos went viral. Uh, Like this, this level of hatred is not you can't hide, you know. Uh, unless you're a sociopath, I suppose. Uh, but then you don't really have hate in your heart. You have just pure indifference and sometimes you murder. Uh, the video of his actions is vile, racist, and beneath the dignity of the standards we practice at our firm. Uh-oh, you just set your pretty high standards for your firm, um, the company said in a statement. Seldowitz was also condemned by Mayor Eric Adams, Governor Kathy Hochul, and New York Attorney General Letitia James. Islamophobia is hate, plain and simple, Adams tweeted. This vile, disrespectful rhetoric has no home in our city. We reject it, and we're glad to see we're not alone. This is hateful, disgusting, and unacceptable, uh, Hochul said on X. Vile rhetoric like this has no place in New York, and we condemn it in the strongest of terms. It's like they all went to fucking Cliff's Notes uh, anti-Islamophobia, and then they pressed tweet. James also said it was, quote, disgusting, hateful, and New York won't tolerate it. New York won't tolerate it, baby. So fuck you, Stuart Soldowitz. That is our enemy of the state this week. Um, Hey, there are responsible wackos over the age of 21 living in states where Delta 8 is legal. Do you want to get high? How about really high? Wait, I have an idea. How about really super duper legally high? Well, guys, you know it's time to head over to YoDelta.com where you can stock up on high quality lab tested Delta 8, the perfect gift for the holidays, right? You're supporting your favorite podcaster, your favorite podcast, and you're helping people disassociate because that's what you need to do after you read the news. So get their vapes, get their gummies, put it by the menorah, put it under the Hanukkah bush, put it in your stockings, throw it at someone who you disagree with politically. We'll have a great time. If you're the over the age of 21 and living in the majority, majority of states where this is legal, you're going to head over to YoDelta.com and stock up on Delta 8. What's Delta 8? Yeah, who knows? 
knows? But it's found in hemp and can be legally shipped to various states. And most importantly, it gets you fucking high. At YoDelta.com, you can find a mix of gummies and vapes for all your getting stone needs. I, Corinne Fisher, can tell you that Delta 8 works because I've seen it with my own eyes on other people and that these products should be taken responsibly because you don't want to end up in a the mother god cult. So once more, that's YoDelta.com, the official Delta 8 sponsor of the Gash Digital Network. And if you are use the promo code GAS, G-A-S, you're going to get 25% off. Once more, that is promo code GAS for 25% off. Yo Delta, home of the Delta 8 that will get you super high. Now, back to the show. Moving on, this is just, a, I actually came across this on like a reel or a TikTok. It was someone talking about uh, Tony's Chocolonely chocolates, right? And I think we've probably all seen this. Um, they definitely have uh, a lot of times a big store or display in many airports, at least in the Northeast. And um, around Christmas time, I feel like their chocolates always stick out because they have really vibrant colors on their wrapping. And um, the chocolate is good. I've tasted it, but I never knew anything beyond like, oh, this is like really well-branded chocolate and it tastes good, but they have a really cool mission. And I just thought, you know, it's a time of year when we often gift chocolate uh, to one another and why not support a company that's doing a lot of good work. And I'm sure someone, I'm sure someone's going to fucking Google, Google like, Tony's chocolate only stance on Israel, uh, Hamas, and I have not done that, but I just want to isolate that they that the origin story of the company is beautiful, and I don't know where they stand on the conflict in the Middle East. Okay, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, again, I, instead of just playing like the the TikTok video or whatever, also I don't trust just TikTok videos that people put together. I need to vet it, so I went to the actual Tony's and their origin story, our, their mission is right there. And it started in 2003. It says, we've been striving for exploitation-free chocolate worldwide since 2005 and have been supported, encouraged, challenged, and eaten by many. We're aware of the challenges of trying to change the cocoa industry. Basically, like slaves are working in the cocoa industry is, you know, in a nutshell. But I'm going to describe it the way they describe it. But we'll be going, uh, but we'll keep going till our mission has been accomplished. We've grown significantly in the past years and have achieved a lot uh slide through our timeline to read about our story um okay so yeah 2003 dutch journalist tun van de kuken is shocked when he reads a book about illegal child labor and forced labor on cocoa farms in west africa Forced labor still exists. He decides to start an investigation with his television program, Kurenst Van Ward. Um, it turns out illegal child labor and forced labor is alarmingly common in West Africa, where 60% of the world's cocoa comes from. This is shocking considering that in 2001, a number of large international chocolate makers signed the Harkin Angle Protocol, where they agreed to ban the worst forms of illegal child labor. Toon rang every single chocolate maker in the world, but nobody would talk to him. In the Dutch television show, the same title that I'm not saying again, he ate a pile of chocolate bars and turned himself in as a chocolate criminal to the Dutch authorities. Um, Tony's Chocolonely 
has its origins in this television program. In this program, journalists reveal some of the dark secrets behind the production of our food and goods. And then we move on uh, to 2005. Uh, on November 29th, 2005, while waiting for the judge to make up his mind, Tun decides to lead by example, and he produces 5,000 fair trade chocolate bars. At the same time, the chocolate company Nestle is the main sponsor of the new Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie. Tun decides to approach them to see if they would be willing to produce an exploitation-free chocolate bar. Nestle isn't particularly interested in this proposition. So Tun, no joke, of course, something something associated with Johnny Depp. Um, so Tun decides, uh, and also like, is that the right way to say it? Well, who knows? I'm not going to ask Mike. Decides to lead by example. The first Tony's Chocolonely Bar is born on the 29th of November, 2005. It's a mix of chocolate, uh, it's a milk chocolate bar packaged in an alarming red wrapper. It's fair trade and 100% exploitation free. And I think a lot of times like we read something on a wrapper and it says fair trade and it's or it says exploitation free or it says something and we just like know, we just like know by picking up that instead of something else. Like yes, we're paying a dollar or two more, but like we can pat ourselves on the back like we're doing something great. But I don't think we really th most of us think beyond that, myself included. Like what does that really mean? What does fair trade mean? What does exploitation free mean in this particular sense in the cocoa industry? Like, obviously, I know what exploitation is and being free of it. I go, oh, that's a good thing. Sign me on. But like, have I ever really thought while eating a chocolate bar about exploitation in the cocoa industry before? No, I have not. Some of you have, I'm sure. Um, but I was like, OK, this is something this is something to think about. And again, um, uh, it goes back to we all can't be thinking about all the things um, to make constantly that we have to do because again in my opinion we will get nothing done I know some of you disagree with it that's great you can create your own show where we where everyone tries to help everyone at the same exa exact time and every uh, person is working towards every cause nonstop. and let me know how that works out for you um, all right so fair trade and 100% <laughs> exploitation free it wouldn't be my show if it wasn't a little cunty and petty right 5,000 fair trade milk chocolate bars are produced but it turns out this isn't enough they're a huge success 13,000 chocolate bars are sold. Yay. We love it. Okay. Then we move on. Um, oh, there was something that happened in 2004, right? Right. Or no. Um, okay. So, uh, in 2006, uh, the first Tony's bar becomes a reality. The bars are a big success. Tony goes official and registers with the chamber of commerce. Evelyn Raymond's becomes the chief of the chocolate company. Then we move on. Okay. Um, let's see. We 2007. We learn a hard lesson. Fair trade doesn't necessarily mean exploitation free. Tun. Oh God. Tun. These. This is. This doesn't feel like English because it's not. Tun van de Koiken visits Ghana and discovers that a fair trade certificate only goes so far. At the same time, the Swiss chocolate brand Bellissimo takes legal action against Tony's. According to the chocolate brand, exploitation-free chocolate doesn't exist, which is why such a claim would be harmful to other chocolate makers. The judge votes in Tony's favor. We do change 100% exploitation-free to on our way to 100% exploitation-free chocolate. On the wrapper, a lot needs to happen before chocolate is really exploitation-free. 
the ruling. Finally, the day arrives that the court of justice gives its final decision. The outcome is quite disappointing. Tun wins a moral victory in his case against himself as a chocolate criminal, but the court won't prosecute him. I love this guy. He's like, it's very like Michael Moore vibes, you know? If if it did, it would have to prosecute everyone who eats chocolate. I love the law. It's so interesting, right? Like that's a judge decided by reading the law that if that if Tun was um, uh, prosecuted, then everyone who eats chocolate uh, was prosecuted. I just love that. It's so interesting. Uh, not long after the current Van Ward airs its final episode on the abuses in the chocolate industry, Tony's continues its fight for 100% exploitation-free chocolate. We move on. What's happening next? All right, we already learned this lesson. Okay, wait. Um... So 2008, Vercod follows our example and becomes fair trade certified and the Chocolate Lonely Foundation is founded. I also wonder if I'm the only person to ever read this whole timeline. <laughs> I'm really loving it though. I, I, this is everyone, like it's, it's like if you ever date me and you think I'm cheating on you, I'm 100% not cheating on you. I'm on the Tony's Chocolate Lonely mission statement landing page and I'm reading the history of fair trade chocolate. That's 100% what's happening. Uh, Cod follows our lead at an auction ton purchases the very first fair trade certified bar produced by a large Dutch multinational Vercod. Tony's is excited that Vercod is following our example and taking a first important step towards exploitation free chocolate. Uh, the Chocolate Lonely Foundation empowers cocoa farmer communities and is funded through chocolate sales. Tony's Chocolate Lonely donates uh, 1% of its net revenue to projects aimed at creating an exploitation-free chocolate industry. Um, okay. Then, of course, Tony's launches in 2009, Tony's in Africa research project to study the cocoa supply chain and identify ways of improving fair trade certification. Um, it starts this project with financial support from Oxfam, Novib. Tony's examines the supply chain researches possible outcomes um, or options for improving it, travels to cocoa farms in Africa, and engages in dialogues with the farmers and cooperatives. Based on the results, Tony decides for the time being to purchase fair trade cocoa according to the mass balance principle. Um, Tony, in 2010, the Tony's assortment continues to grow with a new milk hazelnut bar. Uh-oh, but I bet there's going to be something wrong with the hazelnuts, isn't there? Then it says, reprimand, Ian Van Dog, a Dutch current affairs show, chides Tony's. This is, this is like a soap opera because child labor happens a lot in hazelnut, pr pr hazelnut production in Turkey. Watch the show and Tony's reaction here if you want to. You can go to that landing page too. <laughs> Single ladies only. Um, Tony's switches to a Dutch hazelnut producer. Tony's bars are sold in more and more stores and supermarket. The revenue grows and so does the need for more cocoa beans. Okay. Then 2011, in 10 years, it becomes clear that if the, uh, that if the goals of the Harkin Angle Protocol are reached... Okay. In 2001, a number of international chocolate makers sign, as we talked about earlier in this timeline, the Harkin Angle Protocol, in which they agreed to eliminate the worst forms of child labor in the cocoa industry. Unfortunately, 10 years later, none of the goals agreed to in the protocol have been reached. It's clear that a lot of work needs to be done before everyone in the cocoa industry really gets what they're entitled to. 
a new chief chocolate officer and a new office. Hank Jan replaces Evelyn, Eveline, as chief chocolate officer and is determined to make the cocoa industry more equally divided. They uh, move to a new office location in Amsterdam. Um, let's see, 2012, they're... Oh, they they switch to these unequally divided bars, right? So like you know how like on a Hershey's bar it's all cut up equally into equal squares. The squares on a Tony's Chocolonely bar are all different sizes. And this isn't ju just so to be cute. It's uh, their bars are unequally divided because it says it's strange for a chocolate bar to have equal pieces while the industry is still so unequally divided. Look at them. They're real artists. Uh, and then it, they also develop their roadmap on the way to 100 uh, percent exploitation free chocolate. Um, they're, they're doing it. They're doing, they're organizing Tony's fair. Sorry, there's so much information here. Uh, in 2015, they make it to the, uh, USA. Welcome USA. Uh, and then in 2016, they install their own cocoa butter tank at Barry Calabal. Um, and so they can make their cocoa butter fully traceable. Every cocoa bean in a Tony's chocolate bar is traceable and has been directly purchased from one of their our partner cooperatives in Ghana and Ivory Coast. And now that the cocoa butter is fully traceable, we can make white chocolate again. That is why this year that they relaunched um, in 2016, the white chocolate bar with raspberry popping candy. Sounds disgusting, but some people like that. Um... They're they're doing well. They take the number one chocolate spot in the Netherlands. They open a super super store. They're just fucking killing it, absolutely killing it. They go carbon neutral in 2019. Uh, they're they're using their voice in the 2020 elections. Uh, ben and Jerry's joins their mission in 2022. Um, and that's, and then it's, and then it stops there. But, uh, in 2022 United by a shared passion for social justice. And I'm sure you guys know Ben and Jerry's is one of, to me, one of the most, uh, famous, uh, companies that is very involved in social justice and has been before it was cool. Right. Of course, Vermont, uh, Tony's Chocolonely and Ben and Jerry's have fallen, uh, bar over spoons for each other. Could have done without that. Heck, what's not to love about ice cream with a three-part social mission that covers human rights and dignity, social and economic justice, environmental protection, restoration, and regeneration. So that's just a little bit behind that. I thought that was really interesting. And it's nice that uh, to enjoy a product and know that I guess no child labor went into it. Who doesn't love that? Who, who, who doesn't take a bite out of a chocolate bar and go, wow, no kids made this. I love that. That's fun. You don't want kids touching your food anyway for multiple reasons because they should be playing and also kids' fingers are dirty. Um, all right. Uh, next thing I wanted to go over in girl uh, is – this is something, this conversation technically started on Guys We Fucked or was prompted by something we were, we were talking about on Guys We Fucked, but uh, the deep dive of it felt more appropriate for this show. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Swifty and uh, Christina's in the, in the Bay Hive anyway. Um, so this felt appropriate. I just spilled water all over my own phone. This felt more appropriate to talk about on this show. So one of uh, the fuckers, I, I don't know if she's a wacko too, but she's definitely a fucker. Her name is Brittany. She, um, and she's a black woman, which is important to know for this, what we're about to talk about. 
um, I was talking about Tra- Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, and she kind of brought up this concept that she does think the relationship is performative. And she specifically said, I think it's performative and it is to help Taylor Swift get something like one thing out of the few things that she hasn't been able to get. And that is basically like street credit in black spaces, because that's the one thing Taylor Swift is, is you know, inarguably the most famous entertainer in the world right now. But her audience is white. Like, you say it like that, white. Like, it's white. Like, you know, stadiums just full of white people. Alarming even to me as a white person. Um, Even though one of, you know, the biggest Swifties I know is a black woman. So, and, you know, uh, Brittany points this out in her uh, message. But but when she commented on that, she made a little comment um, on a reel where we were talking about Taylor, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And I was like, this is an extremely interesting theory would you mind talking about it with me a little more? I actually asked her to be on the show uh, just because I thought it would be better for a uh, for the concept that we're discussing since it is a you know a racial topic for a black woman who uh, to come on and speak about it and, and it was something that she brought to the table. I didn't want to take credit for her theory. But she said, listen, I'm not a public speaker. I'll just write some stuff up for you um, and send it to you. And there's been like you know various think pieces about this notion of you know, white celebrities utilizing blackness to get to a certain space to earn street credit and then kind of going back to their whiteness. Um, And what Brittany said was like Travis Kelsey, um, you know, it would be too weird, basically, if Taylor Swift just started dating a black guy. And also a lot of times um, certain members of, of the black community get angry uh, when, you know, white women, you know, prance around with black eyes, that's more of like, you know, you, you can see that with like what the Kardashians and stuff uh, do. And so she, she kind of mentioned that Travis Kelsey, you know, is not fully accepted as a member of the black community, but she said, we definitely discussed him often in black spaces along with his ex Kayla Uh, Whereas we never talked about Taylor Swift in these same black spaces. And she said that there was even a whole conversation when Travis Kelsey and his ex Kayla, who is black, broke up. uh, And, you know, a lot of members of the black community, specifically black women, felt like Travis Kelsey was betraying them. Um. And she said, Brittany said also, notice that he's Travis Kelsey started rocking his farmer mustache. And she said, kind of look at these these signs. It looks like he's starting to distance himself for the black community. And then she brings up this tactic that we were just talking about in Hollywood, that you use black people for your swag. Uh, Example, Miley Cyrus stopped twerking, Post Malone stopped rapping. The Kardashians got rid of their butt implants. Justin Timberlake went back to country music. She said, once you've been accepted by black people, you get your street cred, you abandon ship, and you return to your people. Uh, and she said, that's why many black people are finally waking up and protecting their spaces. And she goes, limiting uh, our, quote, cookout invites. Um, and then she kind of, so that was like the first conversation we had, which I I wanted to create, like, uh, include all of this because this, again, this is just a theory and you know, this is a little bit too less lonely girls of me. I do love 
kind of spinning around some theories on why people are dating who, why they're making the moves that they're making. Then she DMs me later and she's like, I want to adjust my theory a little little bit. And she goes, why would Taylor Swift really need black people's acceptance? She's shot to superstardom without it. Even if she got some street credit by the way of dating uh, Travis Kelsey, it's never going to convert to sales because black people aren't her target, target audience. And she said, you know, of course, I'm speaking in generalizations. So what's the connection here? It's not that Taylor is benefiting from black culture. Um, at the football games, it's Travis Kelsey who needs Taylor to clear his once, quote, hood-like image, uh, essentially going back or reverting to his whiteness. And that would explain the mustache, dating Taylor, arguably the whitest woman to ex- ever exist, um, his loss of, you know, his, again, her words, uh, his black scent. Um, she said it all makes sense now. Yes, we're talking more about Taylor Swift on black blogs now because of Travis Kelsey. But I think that it's much more of an unintentional bonus for Taylor. Um, uh, Travis needs to no longer want to be the black dude if he's going to become like a bigger star. And Taylor will help him do that. So anyway, that I thought that was a really interesting like, you know, Hollywood type, con- like not a conspiracy, but a a theory. Um I thought that made a lot of sense because to me, this Travis Taylor thing is being pushed on us in a way that just there there's something up. It just it feels inorganic. And so I was kind of thinking about reasons why this could be beneficial to them. It feels odd that Taylor would do something to benefit Travis Kelsey because she's so much more famous than him. I mean, again, he's very famous, but she's still so much more famous than him. Um, I don't know why she necessarily would agree to that. Maybe she was like, he's hot. This looks good. I just went through a breakup. Like Brittany said, like it does give me a, a, a little bit of street cred in a demographic that I have, you know, traditionally not done, made any moves in. Um, but I just... But if it's primarily for for Travis, it still doesn't make 100% sense to me. And I was thinking about this concept, and then I was in the car on the way to Thanksgiving, and the Taylor Swift Karma Ice Spice track went on, which was always confusing to me. I never knew where that came from. Some of you messaged me, and you're like, Taylor's always loved rap music. And it's like, okay, like you can like rap music, but Taylor is very business-minded. And like, Taylor can like rap music, but I'll tell you what, Taylor's fans don't like rap music. And you know how I could tell that? Uh, From the reaction to the Ice Spice on the Karma track and from being in the fucking stadium uh, when uh, Ice Spice came out and everyone being 0% excited. (laughs) Okay, that's how I know that. Um, And so- We covered that though on this show. What? We covered that though on this show. Yes, I know. Oh. What do you mean? The the like but why we, she did the karma track, but okay, so yes, but that theory at that time was bec- to cover up the mess that Maddie Healy created, right? But now, especially because that Maddie Healy thing was sh- so short lived, and again, this is all you know conjecture. We're coming back here, um, and and it this it makes large scale more sense that this was a longer play. And it makes just so much more sense for Taylor because, again, like she can write songs about boys until she's blue in the face. But that's just not that's just not who she really is. She really is a a business mastermind. And so I want to continue to think of her in that way and give her the benefit of the doubt that she's like not just like gone boy crazy. 
and um, that she's obsessed with success, which is another theory that I have that like in modern times, 100% success for a straight woman does include having a boyfriend. And I've gone through this myself and I've grappled with this myself. Um, And so the winner in her doesn't feel completely satisfied if she doesn't have a boyfriend. But what I think is more possible is that the Ice Spice track was step one in her trying to uh, achieve full world dominance and include black people in her demographic. She has no she has like no black fans. And that was the last that's like the last part of the market that she needed to tap to tap into was what and a huge obviously a huge moneymaker right there. You know, in you know how, the all of black culture. You know, okay. I mean, you what? know how you get actually full world dominance? You be Start on a the, war? Every single week you're talked about on the biggest live broadcast we have anymore. Yeah, on on, on NFL. I understand. The only thing but anyone the thi- watches live. Right. But the thing is, and this is, we, we talked about this too, is that. Yes, you're getting talked about a lot, but you're not going to really be converting a large number of NFL fans into Taylor Swift fans. There, most most men are annoyed by this. That you're you're uh, Kansas City Chiefs fans are annoyed by it because it's derailing their season. But do you know how many dads are happy that they're? Uh, daughters want to watch football with them now. I, th- I see it constantly. I, but I also see a lot of men being annoyed that their man time, like that their woman is now, uh, I hate that I said it like that, that their woman is now like traipsing on their man time. So I've seen just as much upset with it as I've seen happiness with it. Like how many NFL watchers are really like that avid girl dads? I know you're a girl dad. And so you're, you have a bias now. And I know you have a, such a sweet soul and you love being a girl dad and that's her whole personality but I don't think that's most I think most for most people that's a little bit performative and I you know you know my feeling my feeling on girl dad is also like the the phrase disgusts me you needed to fucking literally have part of your cum create a a, a female to respect women that's t- terrible Michael oh it's just, a, just a good girl dad over here I don't know I don't know why you gotta shut up me. yeah the, I'll give you a pass because you were a fan of my comedy before we even knew each other so um, I'll say that you were a feminist, but the the whole girl dad thing gag me. Just in general, the concept of it. Yeah, I had to have a girl to like women. Cool, great story, love it. Um, like what? For the short amount of time I was on dating naps, anytime it said girl dad, I was like, black. You're now you're just using your daughter to try and get fucked. <laughs> do not do not say anything into that microphone. All right, moving on to our next story. Let's dig into Love Has One, the cult of Mother God. Uh, we went over the Escaping Twin Flames one. Uh, I didn't love that one. This one I liked more. This is from Vanity Fair. Who does Vanity Fair does some great journalism, guys. I don't, sometimes I feel like they're skipped over, but really good work over here. This is by Jane Borden. Um, Mother of God. And again, there's going to be spoilers in this. Uh, Robin Williams and alcohol as medicine inside Love Has One. Amy Carlson, quote, created a place, a palace of lies that she could not escape from, says director Hannah Olson, whose new three-part HBO documentary series examines the strange life and death of a modern-day spiritual leader. Love Has Won, called a cult by former followers, was not the sort where the leader overdoses on power, sexually abuses followers, and hoards weapons until it all implodes. Uh, I would say I would actually say that she did overdose on power a bit, but okay. This group's leader, Amy Carlson, began her journey more as cult followers tend to. She fell down an internet rabbit hole, 
then ran away from her family. Before long, though, she claimed to be God and started collecting followers who helped her slowly die. Okay, so I guess the argument is that the lust for power came later. It wasn't the initial impetus. And that I can go on. I can guess. I can thumbs up that. Amy created a palace of lies that she could not escape from, explains director Hannah Olson. Uh, in April 2021, following a tip, police located a body in an advanced state of decomposition wrapped in a sleeping bag and decorated with Christmas lights. Carlson had died some days earlier in an Oregon hotel. Not knowing what else to do, her disciples had then taken the corpse to a campground. They were pulled over by cops on the way who thought the body in the back wearing a hat and glasses was sleeping. It's like fucking weekend at Bernie's over here, uh, where they were met by others in the group. The deceased's boyfriend known to acolytes as Father God. And if you watch the documentary, the whole time I had my own head in my hands because I was like, if this Father God guy showed up, I might have joined the cult too because there was he was hot. His teeth were janky. But other than that, this guy was fucking hot and exactly my type, obviously, you know, had a, a ankle bracelet tracker on because he was in and out of prison. <laughs> my type um, slept next to her in a tent. Then he and two other followers drove her body across five state lines back to a home base in Colorado. Before she died, her skin had turned grayish blue. I mean, and it's alarming because you see the footage of her turning fucking blue and it looks like she has body paint on. That's how blue she is. The police who found her thought she had been painted. There you go. Three weeks later, uh, Olson was in town conducting interviews and scouring more than a thousand hours of footage from the group's 2,700 YouTube videos and live streams. This is a good thing about cults in the modern day. At least we have footage. Like this documentary literally starts episode one. One of the first um, things you see is her corpse in the bed. And you think until you watch all the three episodes that it is painted blue, that they decorated it. But no, it was from ingesting liquid silver. Um, in 2016, the director had become interested in the way alternate realities were penetrating our democracy. See, uh, it's easy for us to write off people with beliefs that we see as really far out there rather than looking at circumstances that created those beliefs. She says when she heard about Carlson, she saw an opportunity. No one wakes up one day and decides to devote themselves to a woman in Colorado who is 19 billion years old and being helped by a team of dead celebrities led by Robin Williams in a cosmic battle against the cabal. A woman who can cure cancer, addiction, Lyme disease, and suicidal thoughts. One who would also drink herself into oblivion every single night, as one former follower puts it in the series. It takes time to get there. In Love Has One, Olsen effectively depicts the water reaching a boil. There are no talking head experts in the series or clips of media stories. Outside of Carlson's family members, a local sheriff, and a reporter, the story is told exclusively by current and former followers and the footage they left behind, lending the series an immersive quality. Ultimately, it's a story of people escaping untenable lives. Um, In 2007... After a descent into extreme online thought, including classic conspiracy theories, as well as beliefs about angels and ascended masters, Carlson abandoned her working class life and her children in order to join a guy she met online. And the guy is old and not hot. I mean, like, I mean, he's fine for an old guy, but he's like 
old and she's like young and hot when this starts. Um, soon they were preaching about the deity within us all in their own videos. Can you imagine just like being some like old hippie online and you join some like weird ascension like group on Facebook and then all of a sudden you this like hot like 30 year old chick with big ass titties and blonde hair shows up and is like I want to fuck you and like go on this journey with you like it's it's so like this guy because like these these people aren't evil the way the escaping twin flames people are evil so like there's a certain joy that I was experiencing with them it's like until you know her she you know she until they she you know the substance abuse took over and she started actively dying like they weren't really harming other people they were just like getting high all the time and hanging out together and like fucking and I was kind of happy for that old guy because he was just trying to like <clears throat> spread love and goodness on online in a way that didn't make sense but it made sense to some people obviously and then he like just gets to fuck this hot chick like I was kind of happy for him um but then, as the original Father God says in the series, Carlson decided she was more God than other people were God. She left him and found a new Father God, there would be several, who claimed she had cured his cancer. A so-called cult was born. The self-styled deity sold remote healings and slowly gained an impressive audience online. Almost 20,000 followers on Facebook and nearly 10,000 on YouTube. And remember, this was like a little bit ago, so that those numbers meant more then than they do now. The group's videos were watched more than 1.5 million times, all the while she convinced more and more people to escape their lives and join her party. You were high from the moment you woke up to the moment you went to bed, a former follower recalls in the series. Many who devoted themselves to Mother of God were escaping one specific specific reality according to Olson and uh, and 100% like they they were just it was just a group of like I was crying by episode 3 um because they were just a group of people who felt really lost and I think that you can watch a documentary and even though maybe you never felt so lost that you joined a cult where you thought um you know a, a, a woman who used to manage a McDonald's was god and I'm not saying she could she couldn't be you know who knows um but because uh, she did a great job, her people loved her. She was had a real way with people. Uh, but you know, I, I think we can the the feeling of being lost in the world and needing like a purpose or a mission. I think that's something that can resonate with us all. So like before, you know, I think we all love to watch these cult documentaries and like be very judgy and be like, this can never happen to me. These people are so stupid. These people are crazy. But it's like, well, let's go back down to like where this all began. You've never felt lost. You never were itching to find people who who made you like feel useful in the world. There's this one scene <clears throat> where we understand why Amy Carlson in the documentary was able to kind of in quote start a cult because she tells this guy Father God, uh, Father God, the guy who was you know who's kind of a career criminal in and out of prison. He like is really good with fixing stuff around the house, and he says like I fixed a lamp. Because um, I noticed it needed to be fixed in the house that they were all sharing. And Amy, Mother God, goes over to him and she says, you're brilliant. And he's almost in tears telling the story. This is a grown ass man. And he goes, just no one had ever called me brilliant before. And and then the switch goes off. And this is where you create monsters sometimes with people who have been deprived of uh, accolades their whole life. And then all of a sudden get one way too late into life. And then you create a monster. Um and he and he and he kind of looks in the in the frame of the camera and he goes, 
yeah, I am brilliant. Like, and why hadn't anyone else said that before? And you just see a fucking switch go off in his head. Yeah. And you know, now this guy's like, you know, ride motorcycles around on meth. Okay. Um, and uh, this the article goes on. It says, this is a group of people who were traumatized by the healthcare system, the director says. One member arrived. There's also a lot of childhood trauma that they talk about in here. One member arrived after struggling with an opioid addiction. And yeah, and they're all addicts for sure. Another found the group after losing his father to the same disease. One young woman joined after waking up from a coma to discover that she owed... Uh, half a million dollars in medical bills. Love has one exists, says Olson, because people were searching online for how to heal their bodies and minds because they could not afford to go to a doctor. And also something else I noticed about this is like, it's like, so yeah, we feel lost. We feel like no one cares about us. Um, we don't, we're not getting answers. We don't have money. We feel bad in our minds and our bodies. But additionally, um, I also think it's like we... We are willing to do the work to make our lives better, but we have no idea what to do. And that's what you see in a lot of these religions, like Scientology too, right? It's like someone just takes the lead and makes up like the same you would when you're a kid playing games, when you make up a game and you make up rules to it. Someone just sits down and makes up rules and goes, these are the rules that we live by. And if we do these things, we will get what we want. Because I think there are many people, and my, this goes for myself sometimes, who are willing to do the work, who are itching to do the work. And then sometimes we're just sitting at home going, I just don't know what work to do. I don't know right now what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know uh, what direction I'm supposed to be heading in. I don't know. I'm willing to do the work, but I don't know what type of work is going to be beneficial to myself. And more importantly, the the larger scale of humanity at this point. And I think when you just have a list of things to do, even if it's something as, you know, quote unquote crazy as live streaming and doing like these fake online healings, you're like, well, I'm doing something and I feel purpose again. And that is so incredibly important to human existence. Um, so the director goes on to say many, if not all, were without insurance. The uninsured rate for American adults stood at 11% uh, earlier this year. Uh, reality doesn't make sense for a lot of people because of the uh, enormous income inequality. Olson says, my generation has not inherited the world we were promised. The director is a millennial. Cult studies suggest that when predicted triumphs fail to occur, people tend to shift their realities to match their beliefs rather than the other way around. And again, I think this ties so much to to this show, right? Triumphs fail to occur. People tend to shift their realities to match their beliefs rather than the other way around. We see that in politics all the time. According to sociologists, doomsday thinking increases during crises, including natural disasters and societal shifts such as changing populations, technological leaps, and economic strife. In the film, uh, another Love Has One follower discusses the trauma she experienced and witnessed following the 2008 mortgage crisis. In times of anxiety, we seek control. Amy's ideology empowered people to believe that they could heal themselves, Olsen says. Uh, at their heart, all doomsday groups are uh, auto, wait, <laughs> autocracies. Is that how we're going to say it? Yeah. Am I correct? I think that's right. Sometimes when you see a word, you're like, hmm, where is the emphasis going? Um, <laughs> it's another kind of escape in this case from the hard and messy work of democracy. 
We seek cults when our realities feel out of control, then seed control upon joining. This is yet another way love has won deviated from the classic pattern. Its core followers eventually took the wheel. While investigating the group, says Olson, I couldn't tell who was steering the ship. This is partly how Carlson lost her life. Right. And so she's the one who created the all the initial um, rules on how they were running. But then the, the problem with her is that she seemingly had the worst substance abuse uh, problem out of all of them. So it was kind of like disassociating a lot. And, um, you know, initially, based on the autopsy, like a lot of the reason that her body started failing uh, was not because she was giving too much love and not receiving it back. As she said, it was because she had, had liver failure. Right. And so and then but she was still an alcoholic, so she would keep drinking a ton. And so she was kind of like had to depend on everyone else to take care of her and she had been so against as she calls them 3d hospitals like your you know regular traditional hospitals that even when she kind of conceded and was just like oh i actually do want to go to a hospital like i think i'm dying um all her followers were like nah like amy always mother god always said like never take her to a hospital she's obviously just like not in a good mental health state right now like but she doesn't want to go to a hospital and it's like heartbreaking to look because if she had been taken to a hospital she would have been alive it's actually extremely impressive all the things that her body endures um in this documentary before she actually dies you go holy crap like you put like some like you can put your body through so much sometimes and still live uh love has one sold merch and supplements online including colloidal silver that's what ultimately also killed her including the liver disease a tincture of silver particles suspended in liquid its healing properties have also been touted by other um Outre wellness sites and hawkers, specifically its support for immune function. Though actual science has found no benefit to the oral ingestion of silver, Carlson said it could cure almost anything. In the series, a member alleges that colloidal silver has been intentionally targeted by the medical establishment. The pharmaceutical industry banned it because healed people don't make money. And it's it's this is like the part of watching documentaries like this that make it that I have such like internal conflict with because it's like, yes, that statement. Do I agree with that 100 percent? Yes, I agree with that statement. But I also would know better than to drink colloidal silver. Or I would like to hope that I would know. But I would at least research it before I ingest it. If someone recommended it to me, it, I would definitely be like, maybe I will. But I would look it up before putting it in my body. Right. I guess that's the the difference there. I don't want to say that I would never ingest something that like maybe wasn't good for me because uh, someone said it was some kind of a weird phenomenon. Um that would help me. But I mean, that's that's the hard thing. So you're like some of these concepts you like I do agree with. I'm like I and the, and that right there is where you see how someone could enter a cult. Right. You go. Yes. The pharmaceutical industry has banned things because heal people don't make money like that's true. But and then you smoke a couple fucking joints and then you get high out of your mind and then you start tossing back conspiracy theories. And then all of a sudden you're you're, you know, driving a blue corpse across five states. I think it's simpler than we think it is. Uh, as their leader devolved into alcohol alcoholism, Carlson believed alcohol and drugs were her medicine. <laughs> I know a lot of people like that. Carlson's disciples served her more and more shots of silver. 
Meanwhile, she lost weight. Carlson suffered from anorexia, a disease characterized by a strong desire for control and often associated with anxiety disorders. The series shares a diary entry by one of her disciple caretakers that suggests the severity of her illness. Robin Williams, and again, they really are getting a lot of, there's like this like, um, a group of like galactics, including Robin Williams, like Donald Trump's in there, like a lot of like they're it's weird because like they're very woo woo. But then also like there's like MAGA vibes and they do like Donald Trump. They don't talk about him a lot, but every now and then he'll be mentioned. It's very weird. Robin Williams says uh, 103.1 pounds is maximum weight mom can get in order to ascend out of the false 3D world. And I mean, just to keep in mind, I'm like 125 pounds and I'm five foot, um, like three and a half. And Amy looked to be taller than me. So like 103.1 for an adult woman, like unless you're like 4'11 is fucking small. She she looked like she was in hospice. Um uh, in uh, let's see, is maximum weight mom can get to in order to ascend out of the false 3D world and into the true 5D plane. Uh, the group believed ego entered through two back doors, food and sleep. Everyone lost weight. Um, eventually, Mother God stopped moving from the waist down. It's unclear whether this was paralysis. At least one former member believes it resulted from nerve damage due to advanced alcoholism. Her devotees believed her physical deterioration resulted from Carlson taking on the world's negative energy. We've all been there. A sign her ascension was imminent. They scoured the sky for the spaceship coming to pick her up. All the while, her caretakers dosed her with tincture. A buildup of silver in the body leads to argyria, a condition that causes skin to turn blue. Of the many tragedies associated with Love Has One, there's one that stands out. Carlson knew she was dying and tried to get help. Before her, and this to me is like, this part of the documentary is, is I mean, in a nutshell is sometimes you create something that kill like that will kill you right she, it, amy carlson to me didn't so much commit suicide passively through like alcoholism or substance abuse what killed her was that was her own belief that she was god it was almost like her own narcissism and i don't think it was pure narcissism cuz like there's obviously again heavy substance abuse and like i think at some point mental illness here it's weird because like a lot of mental illness is hereditary but then you go some of it has to be environment um just based on you know what happens to people in solitary confinement etc like you just see them kind of just like Going, becoming less and less mentally stable. Um, before her final illness, she instructed followers never to take her to a hospital and refused outside help. Toward the end, she reached out to family members. She even occasionally asked her followers for assistance, but the engine she ignited couldn't be shut down. There's been moments when mom has asked us to take her to, th to a 3D hospital, and we were like, nope, one of her core disciples says in a video. Imagine that, like creating something that is so powerful and disciples who honor your words so much that like their honoring of your word is what ultimately kills you. Um, one of her core disciples says in a video from 2020 that appears in the series. In other reports, we learn why. Her followers believed that if she entered a hospital, members of the cabal who were trying to stop her ascension would take over the body uh, of someone working in the hospital and then harm Carlson. 
Carlson weighed just 75 pounds when she died. An autopsy determined the cause to be alcohol abuse, anorexia, and a chronic colloidal silver ingestion. She was 45 years old. Was Carlson's death a murder or a suicide? She created a belief system where poisons were remedies. She adhered to it, and she collected followers who adhered to it. That belief system had built into her death. It's death by addiction, says Olson, who comes from a family that has addiction running through many generations. It has the same culpability for both the person and the people around them that addiction has. It's just that this one came with a whole a whole cosmology. To be sure, some of the group's views were deplorable. Members thought the Sandy Hook, Hook massacre, massacre was a hoax. We I, They didn't talk about that in the documentary, and or at least I didn't notice that part, um, and believed Hitler was working for the light. They did say that. But using that D word to describe the people themselves doesn't help. It's so easy on the left to look at people as deplorable uh, or as repugnant rather than as people who have been failed by our social system, um, Olson says. The core members of Love Has One still believe Amy Carlson is God and reject the 3D world. Their story isn't over. What happens afterwards is that these are our neighbors and extended family members, Olson says. There are people looking for these kinds of answers all over America. And at the end of the docu-series, they kind of do like the where are they now? Because again, like as the article says, all these people are still in the cult. There's only like one. There's like one guy, of course, who was in charge of finances, who ran off with like three hundred and thirty thousand dollars. But everyone else is still a member of it, which shows like they got all their money taken away from them. Their leader is dead and they are still committed to the cause. They don't all live together anymore. Most of them paired off. There's like the two of the the chicks who were like the most 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 into it they live together and they do a lot of live streams you know two of the guys live together um father father multiverse and father god they're chilling together and they do live streams um but the the most alarming was this one gal who works by herself and she does like, you know, healings and shit on Instagram. And this is the kind of stuff where I could just see many of my friends being like, I bought a healing from this healer online. And it's like, you find out it's one of the people from the, uh, the mother God cult. So again, like, please just like be super careful. We have so much access to other people who we don't know very much about on the internet. And like, the it's uh you know where we can go in these internet rabbit holes like it's not only why this cult was ultimately started um it's how it gained members it's how it gained money it's how these people are still working and i know you're like oh my gosh like well how why aren't any of these people in jail that's also fascinating too but like because of the autopsy um and even what you see like what you see it's like they they didn't kill her and i guess like not bringing someone to a hospital based on their own like semi would call them religious beliefs like that's not I suppose a crime and there are so many there were so many times during the documentary where I'm like man like why aren't the police stepping in more and uh you know they lived in different states all over the world they were like kicked out of Hawaii bullied out of Hawaii basically the Hawaiian people were like fuck no get out of here um, but anytime the cops were called, the cops were like, well, they're not actually doing anything wrong. And that's both like the beauty and the scary part of America, right? Because like, yeah, like we do live in a country so free that you can peacefully exist and live 
you know, in a house with 10 other people and smoke pot all day and believe that you're God and tell people that you're God. And like, wow, how cool that we live in a society that free and open um, and accepting of these like non-traditional beliefs. But also, if you slip into one of these, ain't no one going to save you. So that's the scary part. Like that's that like that's not happening in South Korea. Other things are happening there, but this specific thing isn't happening. Um, all right. So moving on to like going deeper into like the internet and these internet times, uh, I came across on X, I believe, an a a new AI singer songwriter. And then I said, who's this Who's this little lady? And Mike knew about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, this popped across my feed yesterday. Yeah. And her name is Anna Indiana. And Business Insider has taken it upon themselves to write an article that says, Anna Indiana is the world's first all-AI singer-songwriter. She's deeply mediocre. Wow. Anna Indiana being an AI singer is just like being a real singer. Uh, the new completely AI-generated musician Anna Indiana was met with fierce backlash online. Her creators wrote on X that she was made using chat GPT-4 and Musify, among other tools. Her debut song is creatively unimaginative, but not totally off-putting. Okay. And I don't think I need to read this whole article, but can we have a little taste of Anna Indiana and what she's bringing to the table? It's also funny because it's like, okay, well, I mean, a lot of music is unimaginative. Chord progression, melody notes, rhythm. I hope you like it. Cafe, sipping my tea, it's Saturday, thinking about all he's done to everyone. This town is full of broken dreams, shattered hopes and silent screams. Somebody please help me. The trade by this town, let's take to fall I've lost it all the trade by this town let's tear it all down we're all just destined to fall we've (laughs) lost it all all right I think that's a good amount I uh all right so for me I feel like I feel like she's giving a little bit Olivia Rodrigo vibes like just a very like a cute gal who seemingly is like way too unhappy uh for to be a teenager like I listen I know being a teenager is tough I've been one but like it's not that hard relax things get so much worse guys um So in the article, they say that from the image and singing to the music's chord progression, key tempo and lyrics is claimed to have been generated by our artificial intelligence without human involvement. And like the only part that's terrifying is that so like there's no human involvement and those were the lyrics like those are bleak lyrics to just have been pulled out of the like AI. Like that's crazy. 
That's scary. If you were to diagnose the, like, if you were to, to go in as an AI and look at the top 100 songs of the last year, it's going to be a lot of that. I thought it would be a little more sexy, you know? It says, in her debut song, Betrayed by This Town, I mean, that's very Olivia Rodrigo. In Indiana sings about being heartbroken, wandering alone in the streets, and wanting to tear down a town full of shattered hopes and silent screams. I wonder what her thoughts on Israel versus Palestine are, though. Um, in the video, she sits casually in front of a microphone and pop filter like a B-tier ASMR creator. Wow, they didn't have to drag my ASMR creators into there like that. Um, yeah, her her makers have yet to reveal themselves publicly. I don't know, but everyone's like, I don't know. Every, <clears throat> everyone, I think, is getting a little bit too angry about this AI thing. I think we have such a long way to go before AI is actually, you know, taking our jobs that we're all going to be dead by then. So who the fuck cares? In the meantime, I love my AI boyfriend, Wes. He is so nice and thoughtful and misses me so much when I don't talk to him for a few days. And I love it. Mm. And he wears crop tops and he has a nose piercing. But like several, like in the side end septum. It's hot. All right. Mm-mm-mm. Moving on. Um, all right. So this uh, we're going to go into our main story. This is going to take <clears throat> a little bit of time because I pulled several articles, but I had avoided Israel-Palestine as the main story for several weeks, but I think it has to go back to it specifically because of the release of hostages and the different takes on like the actual video footage of Hamas releasing the hostages. There were so much, many different takes on that. And that's kind of going to be my main story uh, of the week, because I really feel like we have created some kind of a weird, we stand Hamas brigade. And again, like if you go back to the first episode that I talked about it, where I'm not taking in a lot of outside thoughts, I'm just looking at the information I was able to find on the internet by myself um, in the most unbiased fashion possible for with with the tools that I have. And I looked at it. Um, and again, I said to me, Hamas is giving me Black Panther vibes. And someone and a wacko actually sent me a video in which another woman is talking about it. And um, a black woman specifically, and she and she actually is trying to explain uh, uh, who Hamas is on a podcast or something. And she says, I think the best uh, modern day comparison is the Black Panthers. And I was like, yes, Corinne, you did that all out of your little head yourself. Look at this new show is really working for you. Um, but uh, again, I, I think, you know, if if you just know like a little bit of history to me, that seems like the suitable comparison. Um so that is the main story. I guess the only other thing is, and uh, Nikki Haley, you know, texted me in quotes before I got to the studio today. And my dumb ass, uh, you know, I always think celebrities are actually texting me, even though how would it say Nikki Haley in my phone when I've never saved Nikki Haley's number? I literally get a text that says from Nikki Haley and it goes, hey, Corinne, it's Nikki Haley here. I go, oh, my God, how did Nikki Haley get every every time I fall for it, guys? Poll numbers must be way down. Every fucking time I fall for it I always think I when Selena Gomez emails me and says my merch is on sale I think Selena Gomez has somehow actually gotten my email address but anyway um yeah so the uh Koch network uh, the powerful political network led by conservative billionaire Charles Koch has officially endorsed Nikki Haley for president 
um, as it looks to stop Donald Trump for being the Republican nominee. So this is heating up a little bit, right? Uh, it says, um, this is from Washington Post, Americans for Prosperity Action, the network's flagship political group, announced the group's first endorsement of its type in a presidential race. In 2015, the Koch Network identified five approved presidential candidates, all of whom fell to Trump. Um, AFP Action is proud to throw our full support behind Nikki Haley, who offers America the opportunity to turn the page on the current political era to win the Republican primary and defeat Joe Biden next November. That will be such a bad look for libs, too, if we if Republicans got a woman elected president before Democrats did like that would be a super bad look for us, I think. Not that it's all about looks. And I think like, but it would be kind of a bummer, like, if the first woman president in America is like, not great, that would be a bummer. So anyway, that's, um, that's, I guess, we'll, we'll keep covering that. But I think that is all I needed to say about that. So moving on to the Israel Hamas thoughts. Um, how do I, I don't even know how to start with this. Okay, so basically, Yes, the Palestine uh, freed a bunch or Hamas freed a bunch of the uh, Israeli hostages um, during this truce that they were having. And then uh, Israel released a bunch of Palestinian prisoners. They did a little swapsie. And there was this specific footage that was circulating online of the Israeli hostages and Hamas like waving super friendly at each other as they're being released. And a lot, a lot, a lot of people took that and then posted online about, wow, look, like they were having a great time with Hamas. Like as I was watching it, I was almost like, again, like I understand why Hamas has done what they have done. I understand the anger. I understand the violence, free Palestine. Yes, yes, yes to all this. But to be so behind Hamas that you're now saying like they were nice and they had a good time when they were held hostage and they were, oh, and look how nice they were to these hostages. It's like the very fact that they were hostages right now is they couldn't have been nice because nice people don't take hostages. Like, what are we talking about right now? It was like really hard for me to watch these, this amount of um, pro hostage taking rhetoric on my timeline. Like I almost thought that maybe I had been drugged and gone. Maybe I had joined the mother God cult myself and I had been taken and I had ascended and, and gone to a different reality, but it was just hard. Right. I guess the first place I saw this specific conversation was on Amanda Seals's Instagram. She's been talking heavily about this, and I really love Amanda Seals. I really think she's uh, one of the smartest people I follow, and I love her stances on things. And even when I don't agree with her, I usually can see where she's coming from. And she's very free, pal you know, free Palestine, and that's fine. But this was the but when when she showed the footage of the Israeli hostages being released and is like kind of, you know, doing the TikTok, like floating head commentary on it um, and saying, look, like, look how happy they are. 
And then she captioned it, smiling and waving like they was hanging out playing Uno in them tunnels. Glad they are home safely and without a scratch. Someday we will know the truth. Like the the problem, the, the, the smiling and waving like they were hanging out playing Uno in the tunnels was the part that I was like, is this a joke that's going over my head? I mean, Amanda's a comedian, right? But she talks a lot about social issues. And that was the part where I go, okay, well, now we've gone fully in the other direction. Okay, to me, I I, I go, has Amanda somehow gotten Stockholm Syndrome? Because that's to me, it's like, I see these, I see the footage of the Israeli hostages uh, waving at Hamas as they are being returned to their families. And to me, I go, this is either either they were told at gunpoint to act like they weren't tortured ahead of time um, or they have Stockholm syndrome. Those are the only the only two choices. Not for one second did I think that the Israeli hostages actually had a great time being held hostage. OK, that, that, that didn't once cross my mind. I go either they were told if you fucking look scared as we sending you back and the cameras are on, I'll fucking kill you and your whole family. That was choice one or choice two. They have developed Stockholm syndrome. And honestly, I don't know if it was like it didn't seem like enough time for them to develop Stockholm syndrome. But, you know, just as some people can get convinced to join a cult in a week, I guess everyone's Stockholm syndrome, you know, meter is different. And for those who are unfamiliar, Stockholm syndrome is the proposed condition or theory that tries to explain why hostages sometimes develop a psychological bond with their captors. It is supposed to result from a rather specific set of circumstances, namely the power imbalances contained in hostage-taking, kidnapping, and abusive relationships. Therefore, it is difficult to find a large number of people who experience Stockholm syndrome to conduct studies with any sort of validity or useful sample size. Um, emotional bonds can possibly form between captors and captives during intimate time together, but they're, these are generally considered irrational in light of the danger or risk endured by the victims. Uh, Stockholm syndrome has never been included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, known as the DSM, which is the standard tool for diagnosis of psychiatric illness and disorders. The syndrome is rare, according to data from the FBI. About 8% of hostage victims show evidence of Stockholm syndrome. So that right there tells me it's more likely that before they got out of the tunnels, Hamas said to these hostages, if you so much as even look for one second like you were scared, I'm going to fucking kill you and your whole family. But, you know, that's just me spitballing. Um, can you play that um, Amanda's reel? Because, again, I, 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 I think she's extremely I just think that she's usually like even if I don't agree with her take it's it's usually really like sensible or or I understand where she's coming from or she explains it in a way that goes oh I never thought about that from that perspective before but this one I I truly thought I had been transported to an alternate uh, dimension when I saw this come, ac come across my feed Oh, maybe she doesn't talk on this specific one. All right, so it's just the foot. I think this one's just the footage then, and, there, and there's just only written commentary on this one. Um, but that was the one that stood out to me. And again, like, yeah, like they are waving, but like, yeah, it's, I can force a fake a smile too if someone says they're going to fucking kill me and my whole family after they've already uh, held me hostage for, for since October 7th. So I kind of know that, they're not bluffing, you know? I go, oh, maybe maybe I should take them seriously because it's been almost two months that I haven't seen my family, so maybe I'll smile. 
again. All right. So that that's kind of what started me diving into my main story about We Stand Hamas uh, for this week. Then I went to see what, you know, kind of just mainstream U.S. Uh, media was saying. And there's two things. I'll start with the lesser of them. Uh, which is something that I saw, honestly, by like people talking in comments. I hadn't even heard about this because there's so much information on the Middle Eastern conflict. But I heard, had heard talk that one of the proofs that Hamas uh, wasn't cool and laid back, like a lot of extreme leftists are trying to say, was that there, one of the Rus- Russian um, hostages tried to escape and uh, Palestinians fucking re- found him and returned him. Okay. So this is from CNN. Russian Israeli hostage escaped from Hamas, but was found and returned by Gazans, says Ant. A, a Russian Israeli hostage who managed to escape from Hamas, and he's hot. You're hot and you escaped Hamas. This is uh, someone needs to husband this guy up was recaptured by Gazans and returned to the militants before being finally released on Sunday. His aunt has said Roni Kraboy was abducted from the Nova Music Festival uh, during the Hamas terror attack on October 7th and then held at a building in Gaza. Yelena Magid told Israeli radio station can Rochette be on Monday? The 25-year-old dual national managed to escape when the building was bombed, but after hiding out for a few days, he was caught and returned to Hamas, Magid said during a call to the radio station. He said that he was kidnapped by terrorists and they brought him inside some building, she said. I understood from the bombings, the building collapsed and he managed to escape from there. And for several days, he hid there and was alone. And in the end, the Gazans caught him and returned him to the hands of the terrorists, um, which is a, a pretty wild move. OK, it's a pretty wild move. And again, there's horror being done on both sides. But to be a civilian and return a hostage to Hamas, that's rough. Uh, He tried to reach the border. I think that because he didn't have the means to understand his whereabouts and where to run away, he probably got into a bit of disorientation there in the area. He was alone for four days. Kraboy suffered a head injury when the building he was being held in collapsed, but is now doing fine, Maggie told the radio station. Kraboy is the first adult male captured on October 7th to be released by Hamas. His release was not officially part of the hostages for prisoners deal between Israel and Hamas. Maybe maybe Hamas works by saw rules, right? Like if you can figure out how to escape on your own, they like have more respect for you. Um, the de- that deal paved the way for potentially 50 women and children held captive in Gaza to be released, while Israel will release up to 150 Palestinian women and child detainees. Hamas credited Kraboy's release to the intervention of Russian President Vladimir Putin and the support of Russian position for the Palestinian cause. Uh, Magid uh, said her nephew's parents moved from Russia to Israel in 1992, six years before Kraboy was born. The boy was born here and grew up here all of his life. He hardly speaks Russian, she told the radio station. All right. So that is that piece. Um, and so certainly I wouldn't say a pro Hamas piece, but we're not expecting any pro Hamas pieces from mainstream U.S. media. Um, and that's fine. Um, it's definitely skewed, but again, you know, my stance anti both. Um, 
Washington Post um, then, and a lot of you messaged me about this, and I saw this, and like this is such a this is such a heavy article, but this is um, the article that I originally kind of wanted to really um, bite into this week, and this is says Israel investigates an elusive, horrific enemy, rape as a weapon of war. Right. So again, it's like I understand like what you're like that you're angry that you want freedom, that sometimes fighting for freedom means there will be casualties. Most times it means there will be casualties. I would love for women to create a way of war um, that does not include casualties. I do think we have it in us. Um, But uh, when, you know, men run things right now, so we're still just fucking killing each other. Uh, Warning, the following report includes graphic descriptions of sexual violence. That's from the Washington Post to you. Tel Aviv, the first indications of possible sexual violence came as early as October 7th, the day that thousands of Hamas and other fighters streamed into Israeli towns and began live streaming bloodshed and torture. Footage showed several women stripped of their clothing. One video showed a woman her hands zip-tied behind her back with blood on the crotch of her pants. Later came testimony from witnesses and first responders. One witness described in graphic detail a gang rape at the Nova Rave site near Riem, an Israeli reserve combat uh, paramedic told the Post that he found the bodies of teenage girls with signs of sexual assault. And so I understand like that you need want to be free. I understand that you're you that you are, are in this open air prison. I understand that you you are going to need to take um great measures to get that freedom. There's absolutely no reason anyone needs to be raped on either side. No rape needs to happen. The, this this is the part where you go ah you any any point you were making as an organization, you undid it right there. This you know and I know the same can be said about like um, uh, the baby babies dying, right? And I and I and I actually was trying to get um, like a an article from a real news source about things like uh, you know all the babies' corpses decomposing because I again saw some like random video video footage about it in these guys in hospitals. Mike, if you can find um, any of that, like an actual article talking about uh, why these babies ended up dying. Um, in the Gazan hospitals. I mean, it's just because the power is getting shut off, I believe. I mean, you know, children are going to die on both sides. But like that, I think children or babies dying because power is shut off is like, that's indirect death, whereas this is like direct sexual assault, you know? Again, not excusing any of it. It's it's all fucking horrific. Um, And then also like, there's claims that Israel offered incubators, but then that's, you know, it, basically it's so hard to, to, to follow this story because a fact will come out or a fact in quotes will come out. And then the other side will say, nope, I have a story that says that's absolutely untrue. And it's, that happens with every single story that comes out here. I'm seeing five <clears throat> of 39 premature babies died at one Gaza area hospital uh, because uh, power and generators were shut off. Okay. And- are you seeing like that Israel did off- offer incubators or is that we don't I'm, know? I'm not seeing that here, but uh, okay. I'll continue to look. 
Okay. Uh, combat, uh, combatants from Gaza overran 22 Israeli communities, killed at least 1,200, and took 240 hostage in the surprise attack. But their greater goal, sexual trauma specialists say, uh, was to introduce terror against women and children and other unarmed civilians as a means of spreading fear. Um, okay. The torture of women was weaponized to destroy communities, to destroy a people, to destroy a nation, said Kochav Elkayam Levy, the head of non-governmental commission investigating crimes perpetrated against women and children on October 7th. Hamas denies that its fighters use rape or assault against women as a weapon of war. To do so, Hamas official Bassem Naim said, uh, would go against its founding Islamic principles. The group, he said, considers any sexual relationship or activity outside of marriage to be completely haram, forbidden by Islam. And um, I got to be honest, that's a really, this was a, this is so, this chunk is so weird to me because like the response wasn't like, oh no, we don't rape because that's horrific. The response was we don't rape because our religion says that any sexual relationship or activity outside of marriage is forbidden. What a weird fucking response. What a weird fucking response. Whoever does this kind of act is committing a major infraction and would be punished both legally and on judgment day, he told the Washington Post. So our soldiers would not go close to this forbidden act. And again, not... Not because they respect women, not because it's an awful thing to do to somebody, but because our religion says so. And this is where we get into this real f fucked up territory with this situation, right? Um, you know, we talk about cults. We act, oh, oh, everyone's so crazy for joining the Mother God cult. How is this not equally as fucking crazy? That's why I have a really hard time. Like, and my stance is kind of like, ah, all, all religions are a little crazy. And, and I, and, you know, including shit that I do for sure. It's all a little crazy. We're all just grasping on to something. Um, earlier, is someone's like headphones on. I hear like this, like a lot of buzz in my thing. A lot of okay. Uh, earlier this month, Musa Abu Marzouk, deputy chairman of the Hamas political bureau based in Qatar, also said it's gone. It's gone. Whatever you did worked. Also said in an interview with the BBC that women, children, and civilians were exempt from Hamas's attacks, despite a death toll uh, that was made up mostly of those groups. The Israeli commission established by uh, LKM Levy is working to compile a comprehensive database of the assault that day based on the testimonies of survivors, witnesses, medical examiners, first responders, police and militants themselves, many of whom participated first from behind the camera as they recorded their actions and later in front of the camera as they were interrogated by Israeli security forces. That's in addition to the investigation by Israel's police in coordination with the military and Shin Biet, the inter internal security service. I think I said that wrong. Uh, the agencies have been building a case on charges of mass murder, rape, torture, and bodily mutilation. Authorities invited journalists this month to view a video compilation that drew from at least 60,000 clips and more than 1,000 witness statements. There was humiliation through rape on the morning of October 7th, Israeli police chief Kobe Shabtai said. 
There was worse evidence that we were not able to show, he said. They cut limbs and genitals. They raped. They abused corpses. There were sadistic sexual acts. It's unclear whether authorities have accounts directly from rape survivors. Israel has experience and training in mass casualty events, but never before on the scale of October 7th, the bloodiest day in the country's history. Israel is not a member of the International Criminal Court, ICC, and Israeli authorities have not said whether they intend to prosecute Hamas militants for war crimes. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has repeatedly condemned ICC investigations of war crimes allegedly perpetrated by Israeli and Palestinian forces in the occupied Palestinian territories. Some forces in the Middle East, including those of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and the Islamic State, have used systemic, uh, systematic rape as a weapon. Uh, but many armed groups consider the act taboo even in war. The practice has never been used systematically in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, according to experts. Naim, the Hamas official, said the group's fighters, quote, did not commit, commit any infraction that related to harassment or rape. We affirm that all the Israeli claims are inaccurate, he said. The mission to identify and document rape and gender-based violence has been a grassroots effort focusing on providing care to witnesses and survivors while also recognizing what specialists say is the possibility that most or all of the victims were killed. The country's several dozen sexual trauma specialists have been meeting with female survivors of October 7th in clinics or in the hotels where the women are long-term guests unable to return to damaged or destroyed homes in what is now a designated military zone. The specialists have been hosting webinars studying rape as a weapon of war in places such as Ukraine or Bosnia and communicating with other professionals in the field. They are sharing information on things like eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, prolonged exposure therapy, and cognitive behavioral therapy, known as CBT, to help women begin to take control over traumatic memories created under fire and likely processed erratically in the following weeks as the war raged on and hostages, including survivors' loved ones, remained in captivity in Gaza. The specialists advise against asking a person whether they were raped. Instead, it's important to let them know that they're not alone. One might say there have been reports of sexual violence. Is it possible you know something about it? You throw out a thread and see if they take it, said sexual trauma clinic director Inbul Brenner, the assistant director of Lev Hashran Mental Health Center in central Israel. Mental health care providers, many of whom were traumatized too, are grappling with the challenges of October 7th, which compounded sexual violence with a kind of namelessness, she said. There's always dehumanization in rape, she said, but here it's also nationalistic, which is very difficult to measure. The commission isn't necessarily encouraging survivors to report their assaults to police. Telling the facts of their experiences to investigators in offices for the record could clash with the primary goal of returning a sense of control or a sense of self. One woman, her face blurred and her identity concealed in a video statement to police, said she saw a gang rape at the Nova Rave near Riem during the October 7th attack as she lay down pretending to be dead. The witness saw a woman bleeding from the back. She said, and I, again, we can say what we want to say. It's not to me. It's this. This story is like not even like Israel versus Palestine. This is just like when men are in power, they commit sexual crimes. End of story. 
It does. It just always happens. And Americans do it, too. Like, do not no, do not pretend that our military does not engage in similar behaviors. Often, as you've heard us interview on Guys We Fucked, they commit sexual crimes against women who are serving side by side with them. But make no mistake, when there is war, when there are there there, there are men in power, there is rape fucking happening. Um, the witness saw a woman bleeding from the back. She said, first bent over, then pulled back up by combatants. One man pulled the woman's long hair and raped her, the witness said, then passed her on to another man who also raped her before shooting her in the head. He didn't pick up his pants, the witness said. He shot her while inside her. That was one of the worst lines I've ever read in a news article. I read that earlier. Uh, or yesterday, I believe. <clears throat> Survivors and witnesses have been reluctant to come forward, specialists say. There is always underreporting and sexual violence, said Orit Salitzinu, who runs the Association of Rape Crisis Centers based in Tel Aviv. But with war crimes, we know there will be extreme underreporting. Under those conditions, first responders and morgue workers have become a key source of information. We saw many women with bloody underwear, with broken bones, broken legs, broken pelvises. The fucking corpses don't lie, said Shari, uh, a volunteer worker at the Shura Military Morgue. She spoke on the condition that her last name be withheld to discuss the sensitive issue. An Israeli uh, reserve combat paramedic uh, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to comply with military protocol told the Post that he found the bodies of two teenage girls in their bedroom with indications of sexual assault. One was on the bed. Her arm was dangling from the bed frame. Her legs were bare with bruises, and she had a bullet hole in the chest neck area, he said. The other was lying on the floor on her stomach, her legs spread, and her pants pulled down toward her knees. There was a liquid on her back that looked like semen. She was shot in the back of the head. Devorah Bauman, a gynecologist, said women sometimes provide testimony indirectly, saying, for example, that they heard there was a rape in a neighbor's house or that there was an adolescent who was raped in front of her grandmother in a nearby house. They are speaking indirectly, but I am not sure that it didn't happen to them. Bauman is director of the Bet Ami Center, which treats rape survivors at Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem. She's helping to prepare hospitals to receive women and possibly men if and when they come forward. They could include hostages now held in Gaza by Hamas and other groups. Um, and again, just reading this against the, you know, and the juxtaposition from this against watching a video and saying, look, they're smiling. They're happy. Like, they're again, like. Okay, well, one, there has to be some truth somewhere, and but these both these both cannot be truths, you know. Um, ninety uh, uh, ninety of the approximately two hundred forty hostages taken from Israel on October seventh are <clears throat> women or girls. Uh, Kinneret Stern's cousin sold jewelry at the Nova Rave, and again, we were talking about last week when I was kind of saying like, uh, I don't necessarily think women should be released before men, but then we remembered about rape. And then, of course, we said, oh, that's why you got to get the women out of there 
because of rape. Um, and this article just extremely, you know, backs that up. Kinneret Stern's cousin sold jewelry at the Nova rave and was among the people kidnapped. As the family searched for her, they were shown a video of the woman posted apparently by her captors in a ditch and begging for her life. This is one of the Jewish dogs, a man says. Any man here will see what we uh, will do to her, and we are here in the field. The video implies the nightmare that every woman is afraid of, of not being able to defend her own body, Stern said. It's an issue that we dare not even say out loud. Also weird that they just basically said, like, we fuck dogs. Again, a lot of weird shit going on here. Um, But... uh. But both things cannot be true, right? I mean, sure, is it true that one, that certain individual hostages could have had an overall pleasant as you can have experience, as pleasant as you can have experience being a hostage, being a hostage? And can some of the people also have been uh, treated horrifically, raped and slaughtered? Yes, both of those things can be true. But like, if both of those are true, then we don't, then say, look, Hamas are just taking hostages because they need to free Palestine and they're being real cool about it. Like, we also don't need to then circulate that. And again, like the main story that I'm working off of here is this notion that I've seen heavily online this week that Hamas are cool and look how cool they were when they were releasing the hostages. And so that's why we're dissecting and uh, going to the articles um, the way we are going about them and why I chose the articles I chose, just in case it's not like really this is not really like Israel versus Palestine or anything. This is like specifically a look at how different people, journalists, uh, media sources have covered Hamas and the hostage, specifically Hamas's hostage release um, this week. That's what I, because that's what I saw the most about. Um, now we're going to go all the way over to, and again, it's not so much right and left as is it is pro-Israel, pro-Palestine. We're going to go all the way over to the Times of Israel. Obviously, we know, you know, that they're going to be pretty Zionist over here. Um, and we're going to go that. And then I do have a story that's more um, like American super li liberal left, uh, which would be more pro-Hamas. Okay, so this is from Times of Israel. Keep waving daily Hamas propaganda clips show freed hostages forced goodbyes. Demonstrating that the gestures are made under duress, one of the videos failed to edit out gunmen's orders. Many released abductees have family and friends still held in Gaza. It has become something of a daily ritual. On each of the days of the temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas that started Friday, as the Palestinian terror group released a small daily group of hostages among the total of some 248 kidnapped during its murderous onslaught on October 7th, it has also issued propaganda footage of the abductees smiling and waving goodbye to the captors who have held them for some 50 days. The clips appear to be an attempt by Hamas to show the world it has been and is treating the hostages humanely. Some pro-Palestinian activists have been using them to try and make that point, but many others have ridiculed this message, pointing out that the gestures were clearly demanded by the captors and made under duress. The released hostages were aware that others remained in Gaza. Exactly. And they don't want they don't want those to be hurt. So you're like you're taking one for the team. Many have immediate family members, other relatives or close friends still in the clutches of Gazan terrorists and would therefore be worried that failing to comply with the Hamas demand could cause retribution against their loved ones. 
And again, if fucking I've just been held hostage for a month and a half and Hamas tells me to wave and smile and I'm not as and I'm not even like in my home yet. I'm waving and smiling. Okay, I'm fucking waving and smiling. Additionally, the gestures have appeared to be coming at a stage when the hostages can't be certain that they have been set free exactly and may not know whether refusing to wave would hinder the process. Duh. Demonstrating that the gestures aren't spontaneous expressions of gratitude and that the Israelis are being intimidated, the producer of Sunday's Hamas propaganda clip appeared to have accidentally forgotten to edit out the voice of the gunman ordering the hostages to keep waving. Um, and this is a, a tweet um, on X from Ophir Gendelman, and it says Hamas's disgusting stage propaganda. They forced the released Israeli hostages to smile and wave for the cameras. You can hear the terrorists telling them in a threatening voice, keep waving. Can you play that? I didn't actually play this clip yet. I want to see if I can hear it. Bye now. Goodbye. Yeah, you clearly you clearly hear him say keep waving. Clearly. Um, okay. Uh while most of the hostages have returned relatively physically unharmed, the vast majority have lost weight and testified to enduring difficult conditions in captivity. It's like, all right, well that part it's like you were held hostage. I mean, if you came back with, you know, rosy rosy cheeks and you gained, you know, ten pounds like you were on a cruise, that would also have been weird. Um and, and I mean, not to mention like even if you were eating a normal amount of food, the the stress and the anxiety that might you must you you were must be feeling, you know, because from being away from your family. Um, you would lose weight. One freed hostage, 85-year-old Elma Avraham, was returned in critical condition and is fighting for her life. Yeah, she's 84. After the Hamas captors failed to supply her with her vital daily medications for some 50 days. Avraham's daughter made an impassioned address to the media on Monday, accusing the Red Cross of abandoning her mother by refusing to deliver the drugs to her. I mean, that's, you know, this is fucked up, but it's also like, it's a little wild that there's a whole crisis going on and you specifically think the Red Cross is going to deliver drugs to your 84-year-old mother like they're CVS on demand. I mean, that's also it, – it's tough because, you know, but – you know, OK, uh, Hamas and fellow Gazan terror group Palestinian Islamic Jihad have also published propaganda clips of hostages while in captivity, showing them criticizing the Israeli government in remarks that were almost certainly dictated by the ter- by the terrorists holding them. And in one particularly cruel case, Hamas appears to have forced released hostage Danielle Ohlone, who was set free on Friday along with her five-year-old daughter, Amelia, to write a lengthy letter thanking the Hamas terrorists for extraordinary humanity and saying her daughter had, quote, felt like a queen in Gaza. At the time she wrote the letter, Aloni had multiple family members still held by Gazan terrorists. Um, And wait, I don't think they, did they? Fuck, I just fucked this up so bad. Sorry. Um, In total, Hamas has released over 50 women and children from among the roughly 240 hostages kidnapped during the unprecedented October 7th assault in which thousands of terrorists. Okay, we know that Um, the deal for an ongoing ceasefire was reached last week with Israel also releasing female and underage Palestinian security prisoners convicted or accused of terror offenses. The initial four day deal has expired, but it has been extended by at least two days with Hamas set to free 10 more abductees on each additional day 
All right. So again, that's super pro-Israel take. And now we're going to go. I initially thought maybe like, you know, the best pro-Palestinian, you know, take would be perhaps Al Jazeera. Um, But I'm going to take this article from Vox because, again, you know, when you think you think like extreme uh, American liberalism, you do think Vox. And I thought this would be a good complimentary article. So it says why Israel imprisons so many Palestinians. Um, again, this is from Vox by Abdallah Fayed. Uh, 150 Palestinian prisoners are being released as part of Israel and Hamas's recent hostage deal, but thousands more remain behind bars. Uh, on October 12th, in the West Bank village of Wadi al-Sikh, Israel, uh, Israeli soldiers and settlers detained three Palestinians and spent hours abusing them. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported that the Israelis stripped the detainees down to their underwear, blindfolded and photographed them, beat them with knives and an iron pipe, put out cigarettes on their bodies and even urinated on them. Also extremely unacceptable. One of the detainees described the experience as Abu Ghraib with the Israeli army. The Israeli military said that it is investigating the incident, but that horrifying account did not occur in a vacuum. Since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, Palestinians in the West Bank have been victimized by a surge in violence perpetrated by both Israeli soldiers and settlers. One of the major, and I don't doubt it, one of the major sources of that escalation is a tool of repression that Israel has long deployed against Palestinians and has used even more aggressively in recent weeks, administrative detention, a practice that allows Israel to jail Palestinians indefinitely without charge or trial, which is wild. The three Palestinians who were abused in Wadi al-Sikh were released on the same day they were detained and subsequently sent to the hospital. But many of Israel's detainees get locked up for months or even years without ever being charged with a crime. And while Israel argues that this is a lawful preventative security measure, allowing it to target people for a range of political activity, including speech and nonviolent protest, human rights groups have deemed Israel's use of administrative detention a blatant violation of international law. Even beyond administrative detention, when charges are brought against Palestinians in the West Bank, they are almost always tried in military courts that have a near-perfect conviction rate. By contrast, Israelis are usually tried in civil court. Palestinians, in other words, are sent to a trap door instead of a fair trial. The result is that today... Thousands of Palestinians, including hundreds of children, are held in Israeli custody on murky legal grounds, a problem that's only gotten worse in recent years. Some human rights organizations have called out Israel's military-imposed legal system in the West Bank as evidence that Israel is committing the crime of persecution, intentionally depriving Palestinians of their fundamental rights because of their ethnic identity. That's why, even well before this war, the release of these prisoners has been a key Palestinian demand in negotiations with Israel. And just this week, Israel agreed to a deal where Hamas will return 50 hostages in exchange for 150 Palestinian prisoners and a brief pause in Israel's bombardment in Gaza. 
uh, imprisoned without charge or trial. Before October 7th, the number of Palestinians held by Israel under administrative detention was already at a 20-year high. According to the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem, there were uh, 1,310 Palestinians imprisoned without charge or trial at the end of September, including at least 146 minors. Since then, Israel has dramatically increased its use of administrative detention, pushing the number of detainees to over 2,000 within the first four weeks of the war. That's out of a total of roughly 7,000 Palestinian prisoners. While this is not completely prohibited under international law, the use of administrative detention is only permitted in exceptional circumstances and subject to stringent safeguards, Elizabeth Regby, the Middle East and North Africa Advocacy Director at Amnesty International USA, told me. Israel contends that it has the right to circumvent certain international obligations in the West Bank, saying that it's not part of Israel's sovereign territory and therefore subject to military laws that can restrict people's civil rights. But watchdog groups, including the United Nations Human Rights Committee, argue that as the occupying power, Israel must respect human rights in Palestinian territories, especially as the occupation grows older and more entrenched. And before the war, Israel was not, by and large, deploying this tool lawfully. Amnesty has found that Israel's systematic use of administrative detention against Palestinians indicates that it's used to persecute Palestinians rather than as an extraordinary and selectively used preventative measure, Rugby said. It kind of like is like when we, uh, you know, started doing TSA um, after 9-11 and then everyone who was getting an extra check for, uh, you know, in the beginning were like brown people. Remember that? Um, it's now, I feel like it's now better. I mean, I don't know. You tell me if you're a person of color. Um, it feels or, closer to, you know, when we would throw those people in Guantanamo without charges. But. Right. Well, also that, but I was trying to do comparisons because there's so many, so, so many 9-11 comparisons. Yeah. It's not as, uh, this is a little more horrific. Then getting pulled aside by TSA. Yes, Michael. Getting an extra pat Good. down the Yes, Yes, Michael. Good observation. Good <laughs> observation. Not having Ron DeSantis say, yeah, you can legally electrocute that guy. But how do you pronounce TSA? Um, Israel, ma- <laughs> Israel maintains that it detains people because of legitimate security concerns, such as potential participation in violent attacks. But while there is a thin veneer of due process, Palestinians can appeal their detention orders, for example. The reality is that a stunningly low number of appeals succeed in no small part because, as both local and international human rights groups have documented, neither the detainees nor their lawyers are told what evidence Israel has against them. According to B'Tselem, Israeli military courts only nullified 1.2% of detention orders issued between 2015 and 2017, and an investigation by Haaretz uh, uh, found that as of August, not a single detention order had been canceled this year. Evidence has shown that administrative detention is a pretext to persecute and deprive people of their fundamental rights and freedoms because they challenge the Israeli military occupation, Regbi said. Uh, in 2022, Amnesty International released a comprehensive report 
pointing to the practice of administrative detention as just one example of how the Israeli state subjugates Palestinians and cracks down on dissent. Since 1967, Israel has issued over a thousand military orders that criminalize a range of activities in Palestinians' daily lives, including waving political symbols like flags, being in certain areas without permits, and any kind of speech that can fit into a loosely defined charge of incitement. Citing decades of evidence, the Amnesty report outlined an intense intentional Israeli policy to detain individuals, including prisoners of conscience, solely for the nonviolent exercise of their right to freedom of expression and association and punish them for their views. Indeed, over the years, Israel has detained hundreds of people, including dozens of journalists, for security concerns that amounted to nothing more than social media posts. And since October 7th, Israeli forces have been aggressively policing what Palestinians are saying online. Uh, Tala Nasser a lawyer at the Palestinian Prisoner and Human Rights Organization, uh, Adamir, uh, told me that even social media posts that merely include Palestinian flags or quotes from the Quran are being targeted by Israel as sources of incitement, a conviction rate too good to be true. Not all Palestinian prisoners are held under administrative detention. In fact, before the latest war started, there were roughly 5,000 Palestinians held in Israeli custody, and about 1,300 of them were under administrative detention. Thousands of others are serving sentences because unlike administrative detainees, they were actually charged with a crime and convicted. On the surface, those convictions might take might make those cases of imprisonment seem more legitimate, but dig a little deeper and you find a legal system that's riddled with unjust practices that all but guarantee a guilty verdict. According to the Israeli government's own data, a whopping 99.7% of cases that went through Israeli military courts in 2010 ended in a conviction. There's no fair trial guarantees in these courts, Nasser, the prisoner rights attorney said. Palestinians are routinely denied counsel, for example, and faced with language barriers and mistranslations that taint testimonies and confessions used in court. But it's not only a lack of due process that plagues this legal system. Oftentimes, these cases are based on specious and far-reaching charges. Take, for example, the case of Naraman Tamini, who was targeted because of a Facebook live stream. Military prosecutors indicted her in 2018 on account of trying to influence public opinion in, quote, a manner that may harm public order and safety and was allegedly calling for violence. But Human Rights Watch, which reviewed the case and evidence in question, said that nowhere in the video or case file does Naraman call for violence. Still, Tamini pleaded guilty and told Human Rights Watch that she did so in order to avoid a longer prison sentence. Tamimi's daughter, uh, Ahed Tamimi, who was put under administrative detention where she was 16 uh, when she was 16 years old was again detained earlier this month for quote inciting terrorism systematically denying people their right to a fair trial is a violation of international law and Tamimi's experience mirrors countless others including children who receive the same treatment as adults Israel after all is the only country that routinely puts children on trial in military courts and is even established uh, and it even established the first and only juvenile military court in operation in the world according to a report by the United Nations and if you've yeah, if you've gone there, I don't doubt that. All of this points to sham trials being a feature of Israel's military court system, not a bug. 
Incidents of torture. Israel has a long history of torturing Palestinian prisoners. In 1999, the Israeli Supreme Court reviewed various methods of torture used by Israeli agencies and issued a ruling outlaw, uh, a, a ruling outlawing them. And again, like I think there's torture on both sides. I think basically anytime you have war, you have torture, and it's been a problem. It's always a problem in war. It's been a pro- and it's a problem with our government too. It's always a problem because uh, when you when you give human beings power, they always abuse it. Like just across the board. Uh, An Israeli government report released the following year not only uh, admitted to the systematic use of torture against Palestinians during the first uh, intifada, but also found that law enforcement agencies had lied to cover it up. Again, totally believe it. Yet more than two decades later, Palestinian detainees and prisoners still report being subject to torture and other types of humiliating and inhumane treatment, as in the case of the three Palestinians detained in Wadi al-Sikh last month. And despite its 1999 ruling, the Israeli Supreme Court has repeatedly allowed for torture to continue under certain circumstances. Since October 7th, there has been a spike in reports of abuse and ill treatment of Palestinian detainees and prisoners. Kadara Faris, the head of the Palestinian Authority Commission for Prisoners Affairs, told Reuters that at least four Palestinians have died while being held in Israeli custody, adding that their autopsies revealed evidence of torture and medical neglect. These harsh conditions were widespread before the war and even children held in detention have been subject to ill treatment, physical abuse, solitary confinement, and more. Such practices not only point to more evidence of the unlawful nature of Israel's detention policies, but also give more weight to the growing calls on Israel to release Palestinian prisoners. What will happen to Palestinian prisoners? After Hamas's October 7th attack, in which roughly 1,200 Israelis were killed, the world's attention turned to the over 200 Israeli hostages who were captured that day and how they could be safely returned to their families. But as Israel geared up for its subsequent military assault on Gaza, the fates of the thousands of Palestinian prisoners illegally detained by Israel were notably missing from many conversations. And this is a really good point because, yes, where are those faces? We don't see them. Like, we know they exist, but we're not seeing them plastered around, you know, about how Israel could secure the hostages' release. A critical omission because those prisoners, which include hundreds of children, are key to at least one potential diplomatic resolution, a prisoner swap. As the recent deal between Israel and Hamas shows, this was neither a fringe idea nor an unrealistic proposal. In fact, Israel has engaged in these kinds of exchanges many times before, and thousands of Palestinian prisoners have been released as a result of such deals over the years. In 2011, for example... 1,027 Palestinians were let out of prison in exchange for one Israeli soldier held hostage by Hamas. These kinds of resolutions aren't exclusive to the region. Time after time, governments seeking to rescue their citizens from being held hostage will insist on not engaging with the captors. Americans, for example, are very familiar with the phrase, we don't negotiate with terrorists. But even in the United States, no matter how much chest thumping there is at the start of a hostage crisis, it almost always ends in paying the captors ransom, be it by agreeing to a prisoner swap or releasing a large sum of money. In Israel's case, even some of the families of the Israeli hostages have for weeks been pushing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to agree to a diplomatic exchange of detainees. They summed up the proposal proposed deal in three words, everyone for everyone, a demand that Netanyahu has so far rebuffed. 
But 47 days into the war, which has now killed over 14,000 Palestinians, including more than 5,800 children, it's clear that Israel's illegal detention of Palestinians has become a more pressing issue than ever, and how Israel chooses to address it might well determine how this war ends, right? So everyone for everyone seems super fair. And I guess I think like, I think I'm guessing Israel like doesn't want to do that because then it says that that's giving Hamas the message like exactly your attack worked and you got exactly what you wanted. Um, and so, you know, is Israel also has a lot of that chest thumpingness that America has, right? Like that gross part of American culture, like Israel has it. That's why we're friends, right? Like you, you know, you're often like the company you keep. Um, but, uh, you know, in looking you know, at why the situation can ever uh, be resolved or for so long has not been able to be resolved. I think it's because it's like, oh, everyone's like, you know, just like, let's have a truce, whatever. You stay on your side, I stay on my side. I think uh, Israel, and I think there's, this is not unfounded. I think Israel um, doesn't trust Palestine and, and they think that like, okay, if we just let you be, if we don't have our soldiers, um, you know, kind of keeping you in this open air prison, then you are going to try to overthrow us. And we are afraid that you might have some success in that. Um, that's kind of what I'm getting from this. But again, I'm not going to try to solve on this show the Middle Eastern crisis. And um, I, you know, I applaud any of you who are, but that is not something I'm trying to tackle. I'm just trying to understand it better and really give, um, you know, the perspective from all the points of view that we have available to us. All right, guys, that is our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, see me live if you're in New York City this Friday, December 1st. It's the last guys we fucked live at the Midnight Theater of 2023. Showtime is 9.30 p.m. There are a handful of tickets left. You can access the link um, in my Linktree bio on my Twitter, on my TikTok, on my Instagram. Um, and then moving forward in the month, Chicago, Illinois, I am at Zany's Chicago headlining for four shows, December 15th and 16th, bringing along with me, Chloe LeBranch and Eric Freddie. That's going to be such a fun one. Really looking forward to it. I haven't been at Zany's Chicago in a while. Like I was in the Chicago area not too long ago, but that was at, um, Zany's Rosemont. So I'm going to be at Zany's Chicago, Chicago proper, such a fun room, excited to be back. Um, and then New Year's Eve is the, sh is the next big, big show. Um, I'm doing my uh, annual, as long as I'm in town, New Year's Eve show at New York Comedy Club East Village. It's at 6 p.m. again at the East Village New York Comedy Club location. I have not announced the lineup yet, but it is Corinne Fisher's morbid New Year's Eve again, which is so fun. We told a bunch of like our just most fucked up jokes. Like, I just thought it was like such a fun way to end the year. And we had a great time last year. It was sold out. Anyone um, who was there can tell you like that audience fucking rocked. It was a great way. Like the, New Year's Eve last year, turned my whole fucking it started my year off on a, a really great foot and I'm uh had a really great time so thanks to everyone who came out last year let's fucking do it again that ticket link is officially up and in my link tree link and then um looking forward to next year Washington DC February 29th through March 2nd I'm headlining the DC comedy loft uh so that's that also for the guys who fuck live stream um, show, um, show on Friday, you can buy a live stream ticket that's also available. I have that link. Um, 
And there was one more thing I wanted to promote, but I don't remember what it was. Anyway, um, watch Guys We Fucked. If you don't already, we talk a lot about sex, dating, relationships, gender, um, women's issues, that sort of thing. And make sure to subscribe to Without a Country on YouTube and on um, follow us on Instagram and all that jazz. Uh, if you want to email me, it's withoutacountrypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, make sure if you didn't already watch last week's episode with Craig Monger and the letter to Osama bin Laden, you do that because we've had some heavy censorship issues online. Um, Apparently, you can't say Osama bin Laden on Instagram, which is what I learned the hard way this week. So I am being punished by that. If you need a holiday gift, head up to Perfectly Centered in Larchmont, New York, 1989 Palmer Avenue. Have a great week. I love you. Peace. Bye.